Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This is episode 87, Hungry for Hollywood, where we'll be taking you back to the Disney MGM Studios around the opening time and talking about the food and restaurant options that were there. Sitting in with me as always for this recording, Mr. JT Kuja. How are you tonight, JT? I'm great. Ready to be back. We're we're back into an episode. First one since Retro Magic. Other than the right, other than the uh, the live yeah, stream, like first yeah. real episode. It and feels weird to be sitting here looking at you guys in three boxes rather than being in in uh, you know in person. So yeah, so good to be back in the swing of things. And coming into us from Central, uh, not Central. I'm sorry, Western Gulf Coast, Florida. Mr. Hal Bowers, how are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha, Todd. I'm doing fine. I can I can be in Central Florida if you want me to be. All right, why don't we stop? I'll pretend go there I'm and then call call us yeah. when you get there. Okay. Let me just hop. <laughs> I'll just take the I four corridor. Yeah, the, my uh, very favorite Champions Gate exit, and I'll just hang out. Diamond. Yeah, yeah. It's probably it's it's okay. It's it's nine thirty. It's probably fine by now. Yeah, so. sure. The traffic has died down. He, right. he was just making eight trips a day there, if you recall. <laughs> That's, he was lugging monitors and doing other. Yeah. Things. I was. I was doing quite a bit of back and so. forth. Uh, and, and did it, and well, I just went recently and picked up a film for us to convert. Yeah, uh, which should should be very interesting. But we can talk about that after we get the film converted. And uh, yeah, a little little teaser. Um, Santa gave me a, a movie for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> already, that's already. Yep. And as always, coming in from the city of brotherly love, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing this evening, Brian? Greetings, salutations, and seasons greetings. There it is. I That's knew we were getting at that. Special time of year. Yeah. I've got the lights up behind me. I see you've got kind of the you know the the, the seasonal color on as well. You've got a the, nice the maroon. whole room here is there's a thousand Santa staring at me right Next now. time we record one, could you have a separate camera so we can see your because we can only see you. We, there's nothing behind you that says holidays. Just, so. just the wall, yeah. Yeah. And Brian, you're going to be uh, taking us through this episode tonight, so I appreciate all your efforts in putting this together. Looking forward to it. That's uh, two of my favorite things, Disney MGM Studios and eating at Disney MGM Studios. So. That's right. That's right. So, uh, But as always, uh, JT, you dove into the mailbag. We get letters. We get lots and lots of letters. And it's been a while since we've read some of these emails, since we were busy with Retro Magic. And uh, I will say, since this is the first episode back, since we had Retro Magic, we hope to get on a little more schedule here. As many of you know, preparing for Retro Magic is a big endeavor for all of us, and it takes a lot of time. Um, so we do get a little backlogged in, in our uh, 
preparation of new episodes for you. But we've got a couple in the pipeline. We got big you. big things coming down the pipe. It's going to be a busy month because this is. episode's going to come out, and we're going to do our holiday live stream. Yep, uh, we'll, we'll we'll be announcing that, and we've got a an interview lined up. Uh, Related to uh, holiday offerings in the parks that we've talked about in the past. And Hal and I are already talking about uh, the next episode he's going to do. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll say it. I'll, I'll promo it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. It's going to be January, New Year's. So we're going to do the final uh, third episode of uh, Pleasure Island. Look at that. Uh, in, in, where, uh, where it was New Year's Eve every night. Every New night. New Year's Eve every night. In fact, if Except you for if, Wednesdays, no, didn't we? Well, we did we do the last time where we said if you we figured out the time you should start the episode at so it finishes <laughs> and we say yes. Happy New Year, right? Yeah, if you time it correctly. So maybe we'll, go. we'll have to do yeah. that again. Three, two, one. That's right, JT. And it is time to record new episodes because you know why, gentlemen. <clears throat> at Retro Magics, at all Retro Magics past, and you guys will laugh because I know you know this happened to me in the first one. I wore these shoes for a really long time and I lost <laughs> feeling in both my toes. Oh yeah, and it took well. I still lose them now and then in these these two particular pairs of shoes, but I have regained the very Stop tip. wearing those shoes. Can oh, no, it's other I, shoes. I'm just not used to... to I just, do you I'm have tennis shoes? shoes? Anything that looks nice, halfway I, I'm, decent? I, I'm going to change it up next I'm going to take you shoe shopping. When yeah, I'm yeah, it's time to go to Florida. You could just go barefoot. I don't think anyone would care. Well, I do have an idea for the, for the, for the next Retro Magic. I think it might involve... Uh, uh, Costume changes. I think I need a wardrobe change for decades, but we'll talk about that. Okay. <laughs> I complicate I, your day. Even I wore more. two different pairs of shoes. I had a yeah formal pair of shoes for my tuxedo night, and then I had a more casual pair of shoes that I wore with my suit. I need Sunday. to go I mean, into the more casual thing. So if we have any podiatrists out there, you know, let me know. I, there's, I hopefully there's no long-standing issues with the. the I think we do the, actually. Yeah. Do we I'm have? Podi- I know sure we have we some dentists. Have yeah. 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 Okay. Well, but, I mean, in the meantime, you know, we'll get some plush carpeting to put down on the stage. From thank you. Yeah, Todd's sensitive. Or, yeah. or we could have, uh, you know, the ladies, that, what are they, the manicurists, the, the pedicurist, and the, you know, oh. the, the, they, we could have like a, in the green room, we could have Just one of those waiting, ladies right. that sits That's there right. and you, like, you get put a bowl your feet of fish. in a thing <laughs> full of fish. Yeah, yeah. the fish come up and nibble and on your And then they t- take <laughs> them out and just rub your toes. And yeah. I, I think as a service, we should just have them on stage. And when people are doing their interviews, <laughs> they could get a pedicure as we're interviewing them. And then we'll get Todd's butler to bring us drinks. That's right. <laughs> what a scene. <laughs> Make sure this panel goes. I got to go get my pedicure right now backstage. That's right. That's right. My, my, third, my third toe on my left foot's a little, little numb. Gotta go oh get my some gosh. Gotta Fantastic. get some circulation. That's right. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, let's get to the mailbag before we really get off topic. We do have topics to talk about. So, uh, JT, what do you have for us uh, in the mailbag? I've got a potpourri here of, of various things. Some visual aids will be on the show notes or in the show notes rather. First one though is from Mike. He wrote us back in September. He said uh, back for the Tomorrowland Terrace was renamed to Cosmic Rays Cafe. There used to be a stairway that went up from near the water bridge and into the back hallway of the terrace uh, in Cosmic Rays. After they reimagined Tomorrowland, that stairway closed off, but the hallway in Cosmic Rays continues. Any details or memory of this? I don't know where the stairway went. Yeah, so we spent some time, I spent some time online with him trying to figure out if I had pictures of the stairway and I was never quite able to ascertain exactly where it was precisely. We were talking, trying to figure out there. 
So, and I, it has been, I'll tell you, there used to be definitely more, um, more ways in and out. And we even, um, even found pictures. I found some pictures of the side that faces the castle, which used to be open air terrace, but it looks like it's been closed in, in the meantime, or at least it's been partially closed into where they might be able to put up flaps during the summer. I just I just haven't been there enough to to see what's going on. But I mean, it used to be uh, like legitimately a terrace. You used to be able to go outside, you know, and enjoy the 95 degree heat as you were trying to eat your hamburger or not your space dog and your lunar burger or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a little <laughs> lunar burger. I'm a little, <laughs> a little bit. It was called something like that. I can't remember. I remember it was a space dog. It's something. Something with the turquoise burger. mayonnaise and the yeah exactly <laughs> well even before that when all coming off of the grill master 3000 or whatever that thing with the broil master. master yeah the, oh yeah the broil master whatever it was yeah. so i don't know i i guess uh i guess we need someone to come someone one of our listeners who was an active you know magic kingdom goer to hit cosmic rays and walk that back hallway and see if i can no like the hallway is definitely weird back by the bathrooms when you go over into the restrooms it's kind of this enclosed off kind of dark hallway now uh i just i just can't remember what it was like before so i don't know no, still I still a mystery all right well we'll keep working on that mike if anybody has any info on this uh please call the unsolved mysteries hotline and we'll we'll figure that out for you Nine seven eight seventy one retro leave a message and go. let us know there you go. I really thought you were going to state the Unsolved Mysteries number. No, I never watched the show, but I know what our hotline is. So There you go. Good. All right, next up, uh, Amy. Amy wrote us. She says, a friend recently recommended your podcast, and I was excited to listen to the Disney Institute episode. Uh, Amy did the Disney College program from January to March of 97 and worked at the Disney Institute. I was hired as a housekeeper, but my supervisor knew that I was a hospitality management major and she worked with the other departments to let me have a week or two of experience with many jobs like the front desk, pool service, restaurants, maintenance, interior design, and more. Soon after beginning work, I found out that Disney Institute cast members could take classes for free, and my guests only paid 10 bucks. Hmm. They were just dying to fill those seats. Uh, I'm pretty sure not many cast members took them up on the offer because in almost every class I took, the leader seemed surprised to have a cast member there. The classes I remember taking... Who wants to take a guess at her first one? Was Topiary? it James Earl Jones? <laughs> Not James Earl Jones, but Topiary. <laughs> Brian Topiary, got I got Topiary. it. She Sorry. took Topiary. Taught by at... James Earl Jones. <laughs> you must now grip the leaf. <laughs> That's what they should have had. The shoes. That's More right. odd combinations like Leah. Uh, what's the Martin Scorsese teaches basketball? <laughs> right, right, right. That would have been more interesting. I'm going to teach you something I have no idea about. We're going to figure it out together. Uh, so she took topiary photography. Um, she was taken in through a back door into Epcot through the China Pavilion to practice her skills. Videography, several cooking classes, voice animation, stop motion animation, and of course, rock climbing. Uh, she did that manana, actually. Uh, when my parents came to visit, we did a canoe adventure, made topiaries, and took a golf class. I was also allowed to use the gym and all the nice Cybex equipment which they advertise and attend the movies and lectures. Most of the classes I took had fairly few attendees. I remember loving the classes and thinking they were very high quality. Thanks for the episode and a trip down memory lane. You're welcome. Very cool. 
The Disney Institute is the gift that keeps on giving. It really it is. It just, just keeps coming back. I know, right? Amy, uh, cast member there. I, I, I find that so crazy that they uh, just, yeah, come on down. We'll, we'll have you do this for free. And she sounds like she took, uh, took advantage of that. All right, uh, I'm going to just keep the trend going here, and I can only do this one more time. Uh, another letter from Amy, but a different Amy. Uh, hi, I really enjoy your show and have been listening and re-listening for years. I'm taking my kids to Disney World for the first time next month. She's been reminiscing about childhood trips throughout this planning process. She was a Florida resident and went often. Anyways, I was listening to episode number 32, Universe of Energy. This question was probably answered eons ago, or maybe I should say back in the dinosaur ages of your show. Uh, the T-Rex mm. <laughs> song reference is from the 1978 album Our Dinosaur Friends by Pam Johnson, Eric Miller, and Wayne Parker. My school also did Dinosaur of the Week in Kindergarten, though the Triceratops was the only song that I retained after all these years. Thanks for Same. the nostalgia. And keep up the good work. I, I feel like on a subsequent episode after we talked about that, that I did mention yes. that we had determined the album and the song. and Yeah, we did get into that. Yeah, I remember on, it. Yeah, it is I, on I think, YouTube. The, yeah, the, the album song. covers and stuff I think we put into the show notes. So, yeah, yeah we, did, we did get that one. But, you but know, it's thank a, you it's, very much. Yeah, it's nice to hear people go back and find the old stuff and be like, hey, I can answer that. All right, next up, uh, Sylvia. Sylvia wrote us recently, um, actually today. She has a couple questions she wants to ask us, and it's just like a stump the uh, stump the Bowers or stump the Brian here. Uh, stump the chumps. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Sylvia wanted to know, what happened to the Native American in the Magic Kingdom? Every Disney World visit, my dad would take pictures with this statue. However, visiting this past September, we were unable to find him. And for context, uh, it is a the wooden, I think, uh, looking cigar store type Indian yeah. almost or something. It's a painted red looking cape. In one picture, it's a turquoise cape. What what happened to that guy? I mean, there used to be two. There was oh. one in Frontierland and one in uh, one on Main Street. And uh, if it's gone, I mean, yeah, they I, they were they were taken. I had answered her today. They were taken, uh, removed in the fall of 2018, uh, and part as part of Disney's ongoing efforts to avoid culturally sensitive landmines, uh, since they were traditionally in front of tobacco stores because. Uh, Native Americans traded tobacco with uh, with uh, the Spaniards and the English and everybody else who came to the New World. Uh, so they became a symbol that was you know, outside of uh, tobacco stores. And the Magic Kingdom had tobacco stores at the time when it opened in 1971. <laughs> and they were outside the two tobacco stores in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, and then as the tobacco stores closed the... Uh, Indian uh, statue stayed there uh, until 2018 when they were removed. Uh, the one's name was actually the Disney name. It was a, you know, Chief Cigar, S E, you know, as in cigar. Uh, sure. Uh, 
I forget what the other one's name was, but... <laughs> All right, next part from Sylvia here. Uh, sent us a picture wanting to know where it was. And uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but Todd, I think you have the answer. You figured this out. Yep, uh, that's the Kitchen Cabaret queue. Uh, you can tell from the posters and the wrought iron railing that was a, a simulated uh, outdoor facade area of a simulated city street, I guess you could oh, say. Yeah. In, sure enough, in that food is. Land. Yep. And the looks tile like a, is a it looks a like tile a comedy floor. club. You're about yeah. to go up on stage at a comedy club. Exactly. <laughs> at a cabaret. Yep. Oh, it was, yeah. It was it was the street outside. It had all kinds of nice buildings yep. and stuff. Yeah. Was that carpet? How was that tile? Was that that carpet is to carpet? Look like? It is carpet to yeah, look like carpet. almost like a tiled street. Like, yeah, tiled street. Wow. Yeah. That's that's you know what of all the things I hit of all the things I took pictures of in there, the carpet was not one of them. So I'm glad to see this picture. Well, I think uh, we need to replicate that. That would be a great shirt. Just. This is my floor. You know, <laughs> it just looks like <laughs> no, but you coaster. probably you probably made oh gosh, Future Port eighty two is now like going to have to start over because we probably didn't know that the that the, the carpet what the carpet like looks that. like. Yes, sorry, sorry, Sean. Sorry, sorry about that. All right, thank you, Sylvia. Appreciate all that. Uh, quick one here. Emily wrote us. Uh, Emily was sporting a Dreamfinder watch at work back uh, on Halloween. Uh, sent us picture of rocking the watch, and uh, we do still have those for sale, don't we? Yeah, we have a handful left, um, so you can get uh, yours at lbvhistory.org forward slash donate. So uh, perfect a... Christmas gift for someone oh, who's habitually late or just likes to be stylish. Yep. Yeah, yeah. it's a good time to buy. Now is the time. That was cool, uh, Emily. Thank you for that photo. And another photo we got. We still get these trickle in here and there. Paula wrote us uh, from the photo center on Main Street in 1981, roughly. Uh, one of those vintage photos on the back of the train oh, there. Oh, yeah. Sent that in. Uh, and we add those to our collection. Uh, we're, old, we're still building it. <laughs> the old-timey Just, photos, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Paula. Appreciate that. We always know you're a, a deep-dive listener if you... you Caught that still. You're still, you know, listening back catalog, and then you dig that photo out. That's appreciated, Paula. So thank you. NBC All right, used, last one. NBC used to, when they would do reruns in the summer, when, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. So if you haven't heard yeah. the episode, it's new to you, even if it's 10 years old. All right, last one here. Uh, this is, uh, wrote us back in October. This is from Donna. Donna recently found her podcast. She's working through the episodes. Anyway, she attached some photos, had no idea where they were uh, because of episode six, seven's Wonders of Life. She finally knows where they are uh, from the room with the skew. Her son, who was two, loved the TV, watched our family on TV while we amused ourselves getting taller and smaller. We spent more time there than most people would have. So some fun pictures there. We can add those to our, uh, our albums in the Epcot area. Uh, her first visit, though, was to uh, Disney in September or early October of 82 for the opening of Epcot. And we went on the Gold Key plan, Todd. Oh, there we are. Gold, you know, yeah, some Gold Donna. Key brethren. Ah, I got somebody who's uh, who's done it with me. So They have a Donna. reunion. They have a reunion yeah. to go to. So. <laughs> yeah. Donna and Todd ate 14 lobsters each for lunch and that's uh but that's another email uh, I'm learning so much from your podcast I love the guest interviews keep up the great work PS Brian unique pretzels are not from Lancaster they're made from my hometown of Reading PA which is the pretzel capital of the world uh I don't know if those are fighting words or not but uh 
what say you, Brian, to Donna? I listen. Since she's from Reading, <laughs> we will meet at the Peace Pagoda, which is up on a hill and looks down on the city of Reading. And uh, that's a peaceful place where I will seed that Reading, Pennsylvania. Well, first off, unique pretzels are absolutely from Reading and they're delicious. So thank you for the correction. Um, I will see that Reading calls itself the pretzel capital of the world. Uh, but in terms of actual manufacturing of pretzels, there's you know lots of big manufacturers in Lancaster and York and Berks and well, but Reading's in Berks, but in you know neighboring counties throughout the, what they call the Pretzel Belt in Pennsylvania, and we can even put a link in the show notes to the we fact can even that there is a, shirt. a there is a Pretzel Belt, um, a series of counties and places in Pennsylvania where. You know, snacks, foods are made from Hershey's chocolate to potato chips and pretzels and things like that. But you are very lucky, Donna, to live in the pretzel capital of the world. Um, that's probably you know. news to Germany, who would want to fight with all of us about it. Like, hey, pretzels are our thing. Not that again. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, it's... Uh, but I... Personally, my favorites these days are the Utz sourdough specials. Come in a big uh, container that I buy, and it takes me about a month to eat them. But I can't well, eat I can't eat big hard pretzels anymore. That's the problem; they're too hard on my teeth. So, as much as I would love a Snyder's of Hanover hard pretzel or those unique pretzels, I, they're too hard on my teeth now. Well, I'll say you're both lucky to live in the pretzel belt. But I'll true. tell you We're, that. Do you live in the rubber belt, JT? Is that your? Uh, they don't really call it, we call it the rust belt. Yeah, the rust, the rust belt. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get your car oil sprayed in the winter, you could have a problem with all the salt and brine on the road. There you um, go. This year we, we tried fluid film. It's a new, it's a hmm. new goo they spray on the bottom of the cars. It Neat. seems pretty, pretty sticky. Todd's in the, uh, he's in the syrup belt, I think. <laughs> the syrup belt, yes. yes. Yeah. Foliage, he's in the foliage belt. Foliage belt, yeah. Just go up and look at the leaves. Yeah. I do make pretzels, the- you guys know that, but I'm not gonna. Yeah. We're not a capital up here. Well, you so. might be the pretzel capital of New Hampshire. Might be your house. It might be. That's it true. Might yeah. be. Yes, definitely yeah. not syrup, but we produce both here in, in small. I do love a good artisanal batches. So, yeah, soft pretzels are. We had them at the office that I could eat them every day. We did in elementary school. I you know I don't know if this was a thing in the rest of the country, but in my Catholic school in the city and in our, when out in our public school out here but the catholic school in the city and the catholic school in the suburbs i went to uh the morning recess they would like take your they you, you got soft pretzels like you could buy a soft pretzel for 20 cents or whatever it was back then and uh they would take at the school out here they would take your order and then like a cloth bag would be hung on the door of the room so that at 10 30 or whatever <laughs> when we had morning recess like, you know, if you said, oh, I'll take one pretzel or two pretzels or whatever, but, you know, you, you, the teacher handed out the pretzels. Well, they were, like, frozen at 8 in the morning. So sometimes you got one that was only kind of half defrosted. You'd be, like, sitting there <laughs> uh-huh. gnawing on it. But usually they were usually they were defrosted at that point. And, it's room temperature. Yeah. So, there's, yeah. so it's just this, this cloth bag of pretzels <laughs> yeah. hanging from the door, <laughs> not individually door. wrapped. Oh, no, not individually. Come on, this was the 80s. There was, you know. (laughs) And they were more foam than they were uh, bread, I believe, too. No, no. They they, they, they came out all right. You know, I mean, they they tasted great to, like, nine-year-old me. But, 
That's yeah, in the that's pretzel belt. Thing. And, and now there's a whole chain of places called the Philly Soft Pretzel Factory uh, that are omnipresent around here. Uh, yeah. So soft pretzels are, in fact, guy brought in 50 of them to the office today. So and We mm. were talking the other day how in elementary school, for us, one of the big food incentives was uh, pretzel rods. You know, the, Oh, yeah. You know, teacher would give you one of those for doing a good job. Here's, and you sit there, there and, you go. know. Scrape the, the salt off with your teeth, and you know positive just, uh, reinforcement, JT. Positive reinforcement through oh, treats. Yeah, yeah. Bite them in half. People store them in their desk with the pencils. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's gonna do it. Donna's gonna end it. Thanks, Donna. Appreciate that. Uh, let us know how the pretzel summit goes when yeah. that happens, <laughs> and uh, we'll uh, look for any other listener mail. Now, keep in mind, we are uh, back at it. We're, we're getting into them here. We're catching up. So uh, if you have anything you want to tell us, questions, uh, comments, or photos, or memories, send those our way, podcast at retrowdw.com. There is a chance you could end up on the show, and uh, you never know. You know, if we don't get to it within a month, it, I, I may go back a year and find one for fun. So send away. Let us know what you got. All right. Well, it is time for our main topic, and I see Brian uh, sorting through his notes, which are efficiently, for uh, uh, for eco purposes, printed on the back of bad faxes that he receives at the fax machine at the office. Which what is that? What, what do we have free this estimates one for? Is CRS Roofing. Oh, uh, and it is uh, Roofing Services free estimates. I mean, I work in land development construction, so they'll certainly uh, find sometimes, you. Sometimes yeah. I get targeted ads. Yeah. Yeah, well, if anybody in the Philadelphia area needs a CRS uh, roofing number. Uh, 215-605-4418, it says here. We specialize in commercial and industrial roofing. Oh, so uh, you, you have a tar There's, roof or a metal at, at rubber. The bottom, at the bottom, it says, call today, Start. T- we can start tomorrow, exclamation point. But today is two words. Call t- today. Today. Oh, oh right. Oh, okay. Like it's the 1930s, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Call today and we'll get seafood. you right on our schedule. I love that one, the old-timey seafood, where it's two words. Seafood, oh, yeah. yes. I can see That's, that food. We should do a whole thing on, like, tomorrow used to be two words, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the Chicago, the, Black, the Chicago Blackhawks were the Black Hawks for, huh. like, 75 years. And then at some point, they just became the Blackhawks. We were like, oh, we're too tired of putting in the hyphen. Yeah. No, there was no hyphen. It was just two words. Oh, just two words? No yeah, That's because the space words. bar broke accidentally. <laughs> So. All right, Brian. Well, you are going to take us through the history of food at the Disney MGM Studios during the opening time. So I'm looking looking forward to this. So what did you find and where do we start in all this? Well, I guess we start on May 1st, 1989. And That's a big a, day uh, in history. It is a big day in history. Uh, Hal Bowers had been up all night. That's right. And you can refer. 1989. We'll, 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 we'll End of the to, summer. We'll have to throw a link into the show notes uh, to the episode where he walked us through, <clears throat> excuse me, that experience. And um, if you remember, he was lo- loaded with a modium uh, so that he could make it through the <laughs> night since they did not provide lavatory facilities for guys camping out in the parking lot to be first into the park. When it opened on May 1st, 1989, the Disney MGM Studios that we're talking about here. And uh, so I don't know how much eating Hal did that day inside the park. Uh, we do know that he got a very cold pie thrown in his face. Yeah. Uh, I did but, have, uh, yeah, I can, we can. Yeah. We, we'll I, I, I remember going to the, to the, um, 
We went to the bar, got a drink at the bar upstairs at the catwalk. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to cede that portion of it to you. Cause I'm, okay. I'm dealing with the dining establishment. Right. So. Cause I had, cause I had just turned 21 that very, you know, the night before April 30th was my birthday, May 1st, they opened boom. So I got to have my first official real live big boy drink. You know, up in the catwalk. And, you know, uh, for for that, you should get like a Club 33 pass. Just like, <laughs> just good for that location once to, to mark right. the, the fact that you had your first legal drink there. And uh, yeah, and I have, as we go through this, it's like, I took a cup, some pictures during the very early days of like the menu boards. And I don't even know why, but I like, I have photos of lots well, of the early menu boards. So. What I figured we would do is uh, walk you through the park as it existed that day. And so you would walk through the turnstiles after Michael Eisner and the first family cut the ribbon. Right. And, Look out, uh, Bob Hope, I'm coming through. Yeah. You know, and so you made your way through and we're not, we're not going to uh, focus on the, the stands, the kiosks and the, and the purveyors. What I can tell you is that at that time, uh, there was no Coca-Cola uh, sales spot there. And so my friend Bo, who has dutifully stood watch for the last 20 plus years, uh, just inside the gates there, ready to deliver you delicious, refreshing Coca-Cola, uh, he was not there uh, the first 15 years of the park or 12 no. years of the park, whatever. I think you might have been able to pick up like a bottle of Coke or something in Oscars in the garage that's mm-hmm. right there by yeah. the um, where they, yeah, that they rent the strollers now and yep because the stroller biz back then wasn't nearly as lucrative as it is these days kids used to walk and uh, or people would bring their own little umbrella strollers uh, and now you know there's 58,000 strollers so so anyway so you'd come through and walk up and Look at the times board to see where to go and looking at your map. And right there off to your right would be the Hollywood Brown Derby, which is the flagship restaurant of the Disney MGM Studios. And one of the things I'll note right as we begin this discussion, I, so I talked today with uh, Chef Raymond Pitts, who was the executive chef uh, for the pre-opening, the 18 months prior to opening the park. And then for the park's first seven years of operation until 1996, uh, he was the guy that you know, designed the menus for every every uh, every restaurant and all the quick service places and all the food stands and everything that went on related to food in that park. Uh, it was Raymond and his team that, that that did the work. So we had a nice chat today at the end of the show. There'll be about a 20 minute interview with him that is mostly him talking and I'll I'll kind of walk you through that before we run it uh, at the end. But this was the flagship restaurant. And uh, it was the first thing you kind of saw when you got to the end of Hollywood Boulevard there where Hollywood and Sunset were. And how much of Sunset was there at that point, Howard? None. It, <laughs> it, it was, just, it was the like a theater, band shell there then, right? Yeah, the original theater of the stars was there. So, yeah, it didn't exist. Yeah, so right right beyond it was the uh, Starring Rolls Bakery, uh, which I wax poetic about a bit in my conversation with Raymond because I think I've talked before. Uh, it was one of my favorite places to stop there and have breakfast when I would uh, rope drop Disney MGM Studios, just go in there and have coffee and a pastry, and the pastries are always superb in there. 
But the Hollywood Brown Derby was the first thing you kind of saw off to your right uh, if you were looking straight ahead at the thing. And what I'm noting is that all of these restaurants are still there. Uh, And that is remarkable for a park that is now 30, what is it, 33, 34 years old now, something like that. Um, the park, the, the restaurants that open that park, uh, not that the Magic Kingdom and other places don't have the same, I mean, they have dining establishments, but they've all gone through big changes, a lot of those locations over the years. And certainly by the time they hit 30 years, uh, they had you know switched out and the hospitality house became Tony's Town Square and uh, they've rethemed the Adventureland Terrace multiple times and uh, you know Cinderella's Royal, King Stephen's Banquet Hall became Cinderella's Royal Table and uh, you know here we're walking in and the big opening restaurants which were the Hollywood and Vine cafeteria or Hollywood and Vine it didn't become a buffet till later. Um, 50s Primetime Cafe, Hollywood Brown Derby. Uh, they were there the day that it opened. And we'll get yeah, to the I, other two restaurants a bit later. But I think the only thing, the, the sound stage is gone. But other than that, well, we're yeah, going to get to the sound. Yeah, you're the sound right. It's, yeah. all, it's all there. So uh, the restaurants that were there then are there now uh, in much almost identical form uh, to what they were then. But let's talk about the Brown Derby since it was the flagship restaurant. So it's based on, you know, a Hollywood institution, the Brown Derby restaurant, which was still there uh, when they were opening this this park. There was there was one on Vine in in Hollywood that Chef Pitts actually had flown out and, you know, met with them multiple times and worked with them on some of the recipes. And they were famous for, among other things, their Cobb salad and uh, the grapefruit cake. And the Cobb salad story, Raymond will tell again a little bit later in the show. The grapefruit cake, uh, grapefruit diets were uh, a fad of Hollywood celebrities back in the 30s. The thought process was that if you ate grapefruit before a meal, it in some way affected your digestive system so that you could go ahead and eat a steak and you wouldn't get fat. Uh, So they started came up with this idea that we'll make a grapefruit-based dessert. Well, you know, we'll just have a cake and put grapefruit on it, and these people will order it thinking it's in some way good for them. <laughs> you know, this the, the, the yogurt's fat-free, Jerry. Um, so they, uh, they enjoyed that, and uh, the grapefruit cake lives on. Uh, so the Brown Derby, you walk into it, and it is, you know, it's an Art Deco environment. And they designed a menu at that time. There was a big push in the late 80s, early 90s for healthy eating. So that is when steak kind of fell out of favor and creams and butter sauces fell out of favor. And that's when grilled chicken and lean fish and rice cakes. Remember those? How those the all those things kind of had their moment. Popcorn as a snack. Uh, you know, air popped popcorn, uh, oat bran had been kind of a mid eighties thing, but there was this big push for low fat, low calorie in the late eighties or eggs suddenly became the devil. Uh, you know, if you ate like one egg, you were going to have a massive coronary and die. Pita bread was, which is mostly disgusting was everywhere. (laughs) Yes. 
and uh, whole wheat pasta was the first time anybody had kind of encountered that was was in this time frame. So there was a big push to incorporate those kinds of things because remember, Wonders of Life opened uh, the same time, um, and the the culinary team had been tasked with you know bringing uh, better tasting higher quality, healthier foods into the theme parks and into the resorts. So the Brown Derby, known as the home of the uh, Cobb salad, the, the walls are covered with uh, caricatures, which are all reproductions of the original you know, of, of these, you know, fa- Hollywood famous people from the thirties and forties and fifties. Do you know if they and, drew any of themselves that were more recent or were they all just no? They, re- they were, were all, reproductions they were of all the, reproductions of the, of the original ones that were okay. that were in uh, the the you know the Vine Street uh, yeah. location. Is which, there a style for that caricature? How do you know? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, I, the originals. I want to. I want to say that Hirschfield was somehow involved. Yeah, I can be yeah, completely off on that. But not all of them. Like he didn't draw them all. There were mm. right, right. But you, yes, you, they were. You know, that was a big thing to, for him to do. You and you to get hung in the stage deli in New York. Or I know, almost or, remember that style is kind of. You see it in some of the the cartoons, like the Tom and Jerry's, the gangster. You know, gangsters that come out, and it's just you don't want to talk about the that twenties and thirties style. I, I mean, it is there, that style of caricature and drawing is very evocative of that time just yeah you know you know just like you know all the nickelodeon stuff like steven universe it's like looks very oh oh it's like that was the predominant style in the 80s there was kind of a you know there that is kind of the thing that happens with with illustration and especially cartoons it's like some something gets popular and then all of a sudden you know everyone there's a rush and a clamor to have that style because it looks good. And so suddenly you've got a bunch of things that look like Ren and Stimpy yeah. in the early 90s. And then that dies out. And then yeah. suddenly, you know, something else looks popular. So, yeah. Um, for people who don't know, I guess I should mention that the brown derby is a hat, a brown hat, the uh, d- derby hat, which um, is a certain style of hat, which if you've seen the brown derby, at one point there was a brown derby location uh, completely shaped like the hat mm-hmm. you know, that you ate inside, <laughs> ate inside the hat. But uh, in in Disney's MGM slash Hollywood Studios, it's uh, it's on the sign, uh, and you, it's it. It was really funny because Universal ended up building a brown derby yes. hat shop yes. in the shape. Of, so my expectation when I went to Disney M. like I expected it to look like a big hat, and it right. didn't look like a hat, and I was like, what's this? Well, and at one point there were four, five, six different Brown Derby locations in Hollywood, so they didn't all look like hats, um, <laughs> you know. But Universal chose to copy that one, uh, and they put Brown Derbies on everything. So I- I'm going to read a little bit from the Burn Bums Guide to give you just to the setting. 224 seat restaurant is predominantly decorated in teak and mahogany. None of that has changed. And the elegant chandeliers and perimeter lamps are shaped like miniature derbies. And they are reminiscent of the original eatery. The china is embossed with the brown derby logo. 
and the hosts and hostesses are all dressed in black tie. The atmosphere is just about authentic, except for theme park clientele who show up in shorts and tennis shoes. All of that is accurate. Here's one I threw at the guys today. Um, you know, they talk about trying to set the scene in here. Even arch rivals Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, portrayed by convincing actresses, still reign over the restaurant from reserved tables, just as they did when the Brown Derby was in its heyday. So to set the stage, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper were competing gossip, Hollywood gossip columnists um, who wrote for different, you know, one wrote for Hearst and the other wrote for Knight Ritter or something like that. And uh, that, you know, they would, they would break all the Hollywood news. Clark Gable's dating this person and this person's pregnant and this person's been let go from their contract by, you know, Louis B. Mayer or so. Um, and, you know, they wrote daily columns where they gave you the update and they were celebrities in their own right. And they were competitors. In fact, they became fierce, bitter enemies uh, over time. And I just think, it, you know, it, it's hilarious to me now to think like you're going in to have lunch at this nice place and there's this person pretending to be in the 1930s like, ah, have you heard about the latest rumor about Carol Lombard coming up to your table or <laughs> like, like, and you said how this stuff was like I did, omnipresent well, I mean, when the park opened. I mean, my takeaway from the going on the first day was that, you know, there was no place for a respite, uh, you know, you would go when I went up into the into the bar and the catwalk, all of a sudden a street atmosphere person came up and started talking, you know, as they do very loud going from table to table. And at that time, Disney, you know, with all the explosions, it was like very different. It was like more stuff was in your face at Disney MGM than ever was at Epcot. So at some point you're just like, I just need to chillax for a minute and just try to <laughs> come down. And like, and immediately somebody is there of like, Hey, and you're like, I, can you just leave me alone for 35 seconds so I can decompress? That was like Todd's wife being stuck while we were riding rise of the resistance and in, in galaxy's edge. And after 30 minutes of just sitting there listening to yes. spaceships take off and wrenches being dropped <laughs> and to, like to, She's uh, like, I'm out of robots here. beeping. She's like, I, I have to get out of here. Like, there's no stopping this. Stuck? Just constant. No, it's just stuff. just the just the standard. You just know, queue just and, being in the oh, land. Yeah, it's uh, you a know, lot. Un, unlike oh, like outside. Yeah, yeah, unlike atmospheric music, w which you get in most you know Disney lands, uh, in their various theme parks in Galaxy's Edge, you just get you know, Inundated. it's like being in a ride queue. Uh, you know where, but having nothing else is, to like keep you going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is that and, constant din of spaceships taking off like, and landing. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be cooler if you were walking through and it was like, doo, 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 doo. like you were walking through a Star Wars movie instead of actually being like in on a, a spaceport and a spaceport. Yeah. I, so. I always look up. I like you want to look up and like oh. But there's no spaceships taking off. There's just the sound, and it's so disappointing. Because like, like, imagine walking down Main Street, USA, and when you approach the castle, all you heard were cows mooing and peasants working the <laughs> land, and <laughs> you know, and, 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 instead of you know, instead of swirly majestic music. I mean, it. Uh, yeah. uh, the impression. I have one yeah. other little brown derby note here uh, to to go back. Is that 
I only knew that the Brown Derby in California was shaped like an actual derby because I read my mom. My mom had uh, Dennis the Menace comic books, and I used to pour through them as a kid. I, st- I still have them today. And there were a number of Dennis the Menace comic books where he went on uh, journeys. They went to California. They did these different things and road trips. And in it, they they were driving by the Brown Derby. And I actually learned a lot of pop culture through Dennis the Menace. So I have to say thank you to Hank Ketchum uh, for, for those wonderful comics. And if there's any listener out there that knows what I'm talking about, I'm probably the only person that is alive. I cannot might... imagine taking that kid on a vacation. He's so yeah. exasperating well, just Well, you home. know, but they met up with Bing Crosby in that episode, in that uh, comic book, too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Pally. (laughs) They didn't know until afterwards. Hey, that kid just hurt me. And I remember they they they, he was he was chewing like a piece of wheat or something in in the comic book, and they're like, oh, they they wanted directions. You know, I just lived down the road a piece was his line. Yeah. And then afterwards, they realized that it was Bing Crosby. So anyway, (laughs) I I will find if I can dig that out. I will scan it. It's 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 a little hoot. So besides the Cobb salad, which uh, Chef Pitts will describe at the end of the episode and the French dressing uh, that they made there in the in right, right on site, what else could you get at the Brown Derby dining at that time? Well, you could get fettuccine derby, nope. which was pasta in a Parmesan sauce with chicken and red and green peppers. You could get a filet of red snapper served with fresh buckwheat pasta. And the dessert tray is tempting. Try another Brown Derby Institution, the grapefruit cake. It says that a kid's menu is available, though the formalish atmosphere may not uh, enchant many youngsters. Here's one of my favorite things from it. Reservations are necessary. Walt Disney World Resort guests can make reservations up to two days in advance, but not on the same day (laughs) by calling (laughs) 828-4000. Disney Village Hotel Plaza guests can also make reservations up to two days in advance by calling a different number, 824-8800. Other visitors must make reservations in person on the same day, open for lunch and dinner. Now, I do, I did pull a couple of years later the, the burn bomb uh, out because I wanted uh, write-ups on the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater and Mama Melrose's, which we'll get to. Because they were not open there on opening day. That portion of the park wasn't done yet. But uh, the write-up is almost identical. Uh, in fact, it's completely identical. <laughs> Three years later. like <laughs> Birnbaum changed nothing. Even the references to Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Which I thought was kind of funny. That they just like, ah, we'll just copy and paste and... Well, I guess if it, didn't, if it didn't really change that much, then it is I, yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. do you think the Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper were still there three years later? Uh, that's a good question. You know, a lot of the, I'd say they definitely went hard the first year. Yeah, and then things probably, you know, calmed down, and they, I think, probably after getting some guest surveys of like, can you just give us a moment? <laughs> Maybe I, you know they they probably pushed it all mostly back out onto you know onto the street. So. Maybe for the next Retro Magic, we can hire Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons there to we just go. come in and like walk up to random people's tables in the middle of somebody's presentation on stage. And be like, hey, <laughs> let me tell you what I heard about, about Bing Crosby. 
He really lives down the road a piece. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got this fella Dennis visiting him. <laughs> That's right. It's a menace. Literally, literally street atmosphere just coming to your table no matter what the concept <laughs> is. Just, <laughs> just, just bugging the hell out of you. It's yeah. worse than Goofy like, coming I don't over. care. I'm trying to listen to Tony Baxter. Please leave yeah, me alone. In Horizons, though, it's going to close soon. <laughs> just <laughs> Why are you talking like old Hollywood? You're from the 80s. <laughs> I don't know. See? It's... <laughs> Oh. It's like this. Just give it to me straight. You're yeah. washed up. You're finished. Yeah. Just tell me what's the word on the street. Oh. So if you uh, if you walked out of there, uh, out of the Brown Derby, and we're looking straight across, uh, there'd be a store in front of you, uh, and through the two walkways around that store, you would end up around Echo Lake, uh, where Gertie the dinosaur is. And around Echo Lake were two restaurants. Uh, the 50s Primetime Cafe was a, and is, a very, very popular choice. And then the Hollywood and Vine Cafeteria of the Stars, which was a cafeteria-style restaurant. And I mentioned them together because th- they're all one building and they share a kitchen. And that's how most of those restaurants were designed. Uh, the Brown Derby shared a kitchen with the Soundstage Restaurant. Uh, behind it and also the starring roles bakery cafe they were all if you kind of like looked the 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 back end of those all three eateries backed into a kitchen area that that could be shared by the three of them oh that really makes Uh, sense Yeah. yeah and so they did the same thing i mean even today the 50s primetime kitchen shares the kitchen with the uh hollywood and and vine um so chef pitt's will tell you in his interview that the, you know, the, the Brown Derby was the hardest restaurant in terms of opening the park, but the fifties primetime cafe was the one that he had the most fun with. And, uh, you can get that because it was you know, probably the first outside of, um, I mean, let's think about this, Howard outside of the hoop de do review. Would this be the, first or in theme park interactive kind of dining experience i'm thinking of everything that's in epcot yeah you know may, maybe the german but that's a show on stage like they're not yeah it, i'll tell the, you when they first opened they didn't go as hard on the whole mom thing as okay. i think they did later on because my my recollections of eating there in the early days is you know they were they were as if it was the 1950s, but they right. didn't go into any of that stuff of like, oh, you know, you don't get to eat until you've washed your hands and what kind of soap is in the soap dispenser. Like none of that foolishness. Yeah, like that was what you get at the Whispering Canyon. Like that yeah. wasn't in play yet. Yeah. So the write up and, you know, just so you know, I mean, you're walking into this place and you you walk in first in the little bar area, the little reception and bar. Area, and it's a wonderful bar. The two, the tune in um, lounge, the tune in lounge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I still have to have a drink there. It's it. That's a less enjoyable experience than actually walking in and looking at the bar. Cause, yeah, because yeah. there's all these overloaded people <laughs> waiting for the tables and it's overloaded and people deciding to have dinner. It's it's always a mess. Yeah. Um, COVID the, messed it up, too. But, I don't know if it's back. But the thought of having a drink there is always nice. Like you think like this is the bar I want in my basement, which is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like dad's basement bar or living room bar. And this was the 
the first park, I think, where they really did integrate lounges with yes. the restaurants where you could go have some place to sit, you know, an adult drink and a beverage as you were waiting. Well, the, uh, all the seating, it was like, you know, like a living room. Like yeah. there was little couches Still and is. End tables. Yeah. yeah. Coffee tables. It just felt like you're in a living room. And yeah. But I do believe they took away the bar stools around the bar and it's still yeah. gone to this day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the write up in Burn Bombs for the opening year was the setting is straight out of the favorite sitcoms of the 1950s. Each of the plastic laminate kitchen tables is set under a pull down lamp. And the idea is to evoke a suburban kitchenette. Video screens set all around the room show black and white clips all related to food from favorite 1950s TV comedies. And these nostalgic bits are visible from each of the 226 seats. If you were listening, the Brown Derby is 224. The placemats pose television trivia questions. And the meals are served on either on Fiesta Ware plates or TV dinner style on three compartment trays. Hmm. The waitresses play mom in quotation marks with considerable enthusiasm. They make recommendations and encourage guests to clean their plates or no dessert. The menu is packed with comfort foods for openers. There's alphabet soup, vegetarian chili, the French fry feast, which stayed on the menu for many years served either plain or with chili and cheese Specialties of the house include magnificent meatloaf made with fresh veal and shiitake mushrooms and served with mashed potatoes and mushroom gravy. Broiled chicken and spuds. Those are potatoes for those of you listening internationally and don't know what spuds (laughs) might be in American lingo. Chicken pot pie and granny's pot roast. So menu hasn't changed too much over the years as a lot of these are still there in one form or another. But I have a story about this next line. There are also burgers and a variety of toppings, turkey burgers, hot roast beef sandwiches, club sandwiches, Aunt Selma's chicken salad, and the apple a day TV tray, which is an apple served with cottage cheese and assorted fruits, milkshakes, ice cream, sodas, and root beer floats are filling accompaniments. And when you finished everything on your plate, mom will ask if you'd like dessert. That's I'm going to stop here for love. a second. The part I was going to bring up was the burger. When I was there with my nephews about five years ago, one of my nephews, like he was in the you know, phase where for like 18 months, he would only eat cheeseburgers. Like that was like, anytime, Luke, what do you want? A cheeseburger. You know, all he ever wanted was cheeseburgers. And so we're down there, Walt Disney World, and in the Disney MGM studios and having lunch at uh, 50s Primetime Cafe. And for a period of time, Disney took the burger off the menu, but the like the burn bomb guides of the maybe late 90s or early 2000s would say you could still get them. You could ask for them and they would still make them for you, but they didn't want the place to be known as a burger joint. Hmm. Uh, and that and I'm, and I'm dating it's it's either late 90s or the early 2000s and. So, you know, I just said to Luke, well, why don't you, you know, when the waitress came over, when mom came over, I said, well, why don't you ask? And she's like, well, ask what? What what do you want to know, honey? You know, well, he wants to know if he can get a cheeseburger. She said, we don't have any burgers on the menu here. I've been here for, I don't know what she said. We've never had a burger on the menu here. And, you know, I was not going to get into an argument with mom. I argue with my own mother enough, (laughs) but I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't need to argue with fake mom, but. I was like, 
I've been coming here for you know, 20 years. Like, I know you had burgers before. Like, I like. Anyway, he found something else to eat on the menu. I don't remember what we got him. I just remember my sister wasn't thrilled with the choices that you know she didn't want pot roast or chicken pot pie or something. She was upset that she was upset at the lack of an ability to get like a grilled chicken something or other there. Oh, that's but, funny. Uh, yeah, and uh, on the desserts. It runs through and says standouts include s'mores. You'll feel like you're back at summer camp. And then it explains what s'mores are. A graham cracker topped with chocolate and toasted marshmallows. Sundays, banana splits and strawberry rhubarb pie. Beer and wine are served. A children's menu is available. And then it gives all the normal, you know, two days in advance you can make reservations <laughs> if you're staying at a Disney hotel. So I have photos that I took of the menu board outside from, and here's the, here's the part that could be a little mind blowing. So, uh, like the broiled chicken is fourteen fifty, The chicken pot pie is $8 and 50 cents. The granny's pot roast is eight ninety five. The apple a day that you mentioned. Yes. $6 and 50 cents <laughs> for an apple and cottage cheese. So that must have been really something. I wonder what that 1989 inflation calculator is there. Six fifty in 1989. Oh, I have a I have the inflation calculator. There. I can get that out. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to look at that and see what they were going for. I, I you know, I'm I'm not a cottage cheese fan, so that's fifteen dollars. Um, it's one of the few 16. old people foods that I don't particularly enjoy. I've tried to like it, but I just can't. That's uh, fifteen dollars, almost sixteen. All right, you know. Scoop of cottage cheese and apple, and I don't know what the other fruits are, but geez, yeah, you're paying for the prep and the service. That's what we're paying for. That's a that's an expensive apple. <laughs> but one of the things that I think was neat about this restaurant, uh, I will say, is like they took normal comfort foods, meatloaf, pot pie, and elevated it. I think that was yes. really the the the. It wasn't you know it wasn't. It really wasn't your mom's meatloaf. It was really a super high quality meatloaf, right? In comparison, and, and made um, with with a higher quality meat, and so you weren't right. getting ground chuck or something like that. Yeah. There, and they were using veal when they were. I mean, I will say, given all of the restaurants, you know, p- property wide, obviously it's not like we're not comparing to Shula's. But if you're just going to go walk into a restaurant, the food there was really higher quality, I think, and more innovative than probably any of the other parks at that time. And I think if you, when you hear Chef Pitts talk about it a bit, I mean, that that was, you know, it was a product of 18 months of planning. And this was the park we all know. Michael Eisner, you know, personally tasted every dish. There were tastings for him and other executives uh, before they were allowed to be put on the menu, they had to approve everything. They wanted this yeah. to be, you know, this was this was the the first park he built from scratch, uh, and these were, you know, they, they had high expectations for this, and they wanted it to be high quality. And money was, you know, cost was no object, um, and it was built originally built as a half day park. It was an add on. It was expected that you would come there. Do the studio tour, have a couple of other attractions, either have lunch or dinner there, and then go spend more of your vacation at Epcot and the Magic Kingdom and the other things that they were doing there. Right. Um, Uh, One thing that did really work in its favor is um, 
the um, Fiestaware. The yes. the new like revitalized version of Fiestaware had literally just come out like the year before. So they were able to get new Fiestaware for the tableware, which wouldn't have been available otherwise. And the same thing, the boomerang for Mica Top, like they had just reintroduced that as a pattern that you could get like right when that park was opening up. So it was sort of like the perfect culmination of all those things happening at one time. And I am going to call those things. I think you'll agree with me, Howard. I'm going to call them the back to the future effect because that there was that period in the 80s, back to the future and Peggy Sue got married. And you can probably think of two or three others I'm not thinking of. Uh, you know, not as much happy days and American graffiti. They were before that. Right. But there was then this you know period of time where, you know, the adults of the 50s or, you know, uh, or rather the kids of the 50s were now the adults of the 80s. Right. And and just the way that there's a fascination with the 80s now, but not nearly as much 80s culture out there as I would like. You know, where's my 80s restaurants and things like that? They're just. We're not Welcome getting to the cafe eighties. Yeah, well, you know, right. But there was a, you know, the fifties style diner became kind of a, a oh yeah, a, an omnipresent thing in the late eighties, early nineties. That was a, you know, a a motif that that you know permeated. And so th- this going in there, uh, I would certainly think that the. That Formica pattern and the Fiesta wear coming back were all part of that rebirth. Definitely. Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's like there was that thing of looking back. And I see this pattern over and over again is looking back 30 years and bringing these things. Yeah. You know, as professionals go into the design thing, they look back at the things that inspired them as kids. They start hitting thrift stores and they start reinventing that and bringing it back again. Yeah. A hundred. You were dead on. That is exactly what that was. Um, I can't think of any like '80s restaurants or foods though that could be inspiring to uh, to revitalize again. That's fast. That's a fascinating idea though. Yeah, well, I mean, I just mean in terms of theming, and I guess the the barcades and things like anymore. that, uh, the, like the barcades and yeah. stuff like that, are I mean, kind, you just, kind of lean into it. Yeah, you see but, that vaporware kind of style. You know the squiggly lines and some of the colored yeah. things that, but yeah, hmm. but but the the I mean those fifties places were were always decked out in actual artifacts from the fifties and right. and um, you know not so much the the menu I mean because the menu was always burgers and fries and you know it was it was the it was the fifties primetime menu, but more of a, a diner type of thing. It was the food wasn't so much of an innovation as uh, as the decor, as the you know the right. the immersion theming, and that's where I, you know, I mean, you know, if you really wanted to have an eighties restaurant, just add a smoking section back to <laughs> restaurants <laughs> of today, and everybody just sitting there going, <laughs> well, we'll just remove this one foot divider between you, and we'll create. Yeah, that's the yeah, you know. That's, you know 
I, I guess that would that, literally be the gag every time anybody seated though. It's like, do you want smoking or not? And people are like, wait, what? And like, ah, just kidding. We don't yeah. have that still. You know, I guess in the eighties, the prevalent restaurants were like Sizzler, and so there just isn't anything. Well, yeah, awesome I mean, that was kind of like out, Outback Steakhouse was was kind of late eighties. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made its debut, and but uh, Hard Rock was, you know, Hard Rock and Hollywood. Hard Rock had been around a while. That was the first, but but they, then you had they, Hollywood. You had Rainforest they were like Cafe. big cities. They they you know. They they were big yeah. cities. They didn't build that in Akron. No, no, you know, right. they built it in Cleveland. It yeah, was, you know, the, the, so you're 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 trying to put it into perspective of the kind of, you know, Bennigans and places like that that were just kind of around. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I it would have to be a new concept, but you just have to kind of figure out what goes all over the walls and yeah, you know, Walkmans. Yeah, Walkmans yeah, and Walkmans Rubens and cubes grids and wacky and, walkers yeah. and. Lots of neon. You know, your your menu's a trapper keeper. You know that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's. I got a gold idea here, Jerry. It's gold. I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I mentioned, it shared a kitchen. Uh, still shares a kitchen with the Hollywood and Vine, but the Hollywood and Vine then was not a buffet like it is now. Now it is a character buffet. Well, it's not a character every meal now, uh, but it it's a buffet, um, and when it opened, it was cafeteria style. So the write-up one, it says, the distinctive Art Deco facade ushers guests into a contemporary version of a 1950s diner, all stainless steel with pink accents. An elaborate 42 by 8 foot wall mural depicts notable Hollywood landmarks, including the Disney Studios, Columbia Ranch, and Warner Brothers, back when they were the only studios in the San Fernando Valley. At the center of the mural is the Fox Carthay Circle Theater, where Snow White premiered in 1937. That location has 368 seats, which is surprising to me because it seems smaller than the Primetime Cafe to me. But It's uh, so, I mean, between, but it's got a huge outside too. Yeah, it does have that whole front like porch yeah. type thing. The 368-seat cafeteria presents a varied menu at breakfast. There's the Hollywood Scramble. Two eggs served with bacon or sausage and a choice of potatoes or grits and a breakfast biscuit. All the usuals, French totes, pancakes, omelets, lox and yeah. bagels, assorted hot and cold cereals and fresh fruit. You looking at the menu? Is that five five twenty five for the scramble? Wow. Uh, muffins, Danish and croissants are also served. Lunch features a variety of salads, including the seafood serenade which is a grilled salad of shrimp, grilled tuna, crab, and green served with a Cajun remoulade sauce, a remoulade. Now. Oh, yeah, chef, $9.95 for that. So one of the big things that people may remember is that late 80s, early 90s, uh, when Boston Market came into its own, a big thing was the rotisserie chicken. And this location... Uh, had rotisserie chicken and rotisserie meats. And so baby back ribs, roasted chicken, steak, and tortellini are also served midday. The dinner menu adds prime rib, veal chops, and mesquite grilled pork chops. Raymond mentions at the end of the episode, he loved the rotisserie chickens in here because people could walk in and see them going around that rotisserie conveyor belt, you know, like they, what was the... uh, was the one they sold for him? Was it the Showtime? The, oh, the, ro- the uh, rotisserie grill, the, the, the Rompe, the, Ron, the Ronco. Yeah, yeah, I think Rompe it was Pille. called the Showtime. Yeah. Um, oh, right, right. 
And, uh, you know, you could rotisserie your own chicken at home instead of paying $4 at Costco now. And, Brian, we, but, can't, we can't forget that before it was Boston Market, it was Boston Chicken. Boston Chicken. Absolutely. Yeah. It was Boston Chicken. I never understood why they wanted to do that, but I guess they wanted you to realize that you could get meatloaf there. So. That was the big thing, that yeah. people didn't want to just go to a chicken place. That's what Kentucky Fried Chicken was for, and then it became KFC. But I mention that because on the 50s primetime menu – broiled chicken and spuds was one of the was one of the options and i am sure there was a shared kitchen thing going on where they were taking some of the rotisserie chicken and utilizing it next door at the 50s primetime cafe yeah uh but homemade pies how headed the dessert list at this location i'm trying to see if i have it here (laughs) love a breakdown on the pies I don't have I don't have the dessert menu. They didn't put that outside. Uh, you know, dessert always gets the short shrift at these. You places. know, there's usually a. So here's the thing: at the bottom of the menu, from that was outside in little letters, it just says featuring a cast of scrumptious desserts, assorted beverages, draft beers, and wine by the glass. So you'd have to go in to find out what they had. It's funny because uh, I do have Scott Joseph, who is still doing restaurant write-ups and is on Twitter, and uh, he was the uh, Orlando Sentinel's restaurant critic at the time. I don't know if he still works for the Sentinel or not. I think he does. Uh, But he still covers food in Orlando now, 35 years later. And I have his initial write-up of the restaurants at Disney MGM Studios as well. And on the Hollywood and Vine cafeterias is there are rows of rotisserie filled with herb chickens to tempt you. The smell of hickory smoked ribs, $9.75, got the better of me, however, so I had to have some. The meat was lean, and though it wasn't quite falling off the bone, it was pretty tender. Instead of being smothered in barbecue sauce, they were served just lightly brushed. Servers automatically give a dish of extra sauce for folks who feel the need to slather on a little more. <laughs> Go ahead if you want to, but this sauce is one of Pitts's, Chef Pitts's, ways of reducing your calorie and sodium intake. And instead huh. of French fries, have the grilled sweet potatoes for $1.35. They're delicious and better for you than something that has been boiled in oil. So, I mean, they, they make that? the Hollywood. I don't mind. I've been to Hollywood and Vine a few times with uh, my younger family members. We've done the buffet there. It's not something I tend to do with adult companions, but uh, the food's always been good there. So that's interesting that they shifted from cafeteria to buffet at some point. Well, there was a <clears throat> there was a period of time where they were all well it became Hollywood and Dine. And that was a character breakfast. It's it's still, I mean, the place is, the location is Hollywood and Vine still. Right. But the, but the breakfast or meal itself, I believe, was called Hollywood and Dine. Like Minnie's Manahuna breakfast or right, you right, know, yeah, yeah. whatever the, you know, the other character meals are named. Um, and so they would, Mickey and Minnie and these others would come around dressed in Hollywood clothes and visit the tables. I don't know and then eventually it was a uh, there'll be people that write in and tell us um at some point i feel like it was a disney junior breakfast uh, like if you went in mm. there and you you know like doug and people walked around and said hello to you um i i don't remember i i know i went to it and there were characters um but i don't remember who they were to be honest with you you know and and 
I know during COVID they stopped the characters. Um, I think for a while it was closed altogether, but it's, uh, it is, I know it's open now and, uh, you know, if they should bring the rotisseries back, you know, maybe that was bring kicking it back to the nineties, you know, right. Yeah. (laughs) So the other place that you mentioned, which, you know, we'll pour one out for that was there on opening day was the soundstage restaurant. And then this is a, a very interesting concept. So to tell people where it is, if you walked through the Disney MGM Studios Arch, which now says Disney Hollywood Studios on it, behind the Brown Derby, uh, you would end up in the courtyard. And standing there today, you would look to your left, and the bones of the former Voyage of the Little Voyage of the Little Mermaid, right? Yeah, was the mm-hmm. name of the stage show, yep. which may or may not be coming back. I want to say I read at some point they were casting for that again. Uh, I might be wrong. You know, this is not a new show, but, um, and then straight ahead <laughs> was part of the studio tour. Right. But right now, now is, uh, the star Wars gift shop. Um, and then off to the right, uh, would be the Disney junior live on stage and some meet and greet areas for some of the Disney junior characters. But, at this time, when the park opened off to your right, that was uh, the soundstage restaurant. Now, Howard, do we want to take a break here? Because between the two was the stairwell to take you up to the Catwalk Bar, which That's is over true, top yeah. of the uh, Hollywood Brown Derby, was the, mm-hmm. which is now the entrance to the Club 33 lounge that is in uh, Hollywood Studios. But for... 20 plus years was the closed shuttered bones of the catwalk <laughs> bar. So tell yeah. us about the bar and the drink and the, you know, your so, visit there. Yeah. So you would, uh, so you, you would, you could go through the Brown Derby or you could go through the soundstage and, and make a right. If you go through the Brown Derby, I believe you make a left and go sort of where the bathrooms are. Yep. And those went into a common hallway because as, Brian said those buildings are all connected and in that hallway there was a staircase with a sign that directed you to go up to the catwalk or you could get into a elevator or you could get on one of the nine telephones that was on the wall there (laughs) right (laughs) and you would make your way upstairs and um, the the catwalk was sort of set up like a like a prop storage area so you would walk in and there were cages with you know statues and different you know paraphernalia that with alt with tags on them as if you know a movie company could come in and say like oh i want to rent that and that and that and that for uh for my show and then and then so there were a bunch of tables it was kind of like a big u that would go and look down on where the sound stage was so when the sound stage opened with big business you know you could you see sort of like the set pieces of big business and the people eating uh downstairs and uh, there's just a bunch of tables up there and, you know, they had some some cocktails and some beverages available, beer, you know, wine and uh, and some specialty drinks. And yeah, it was a, it was a nice out of the way place. Uh, do you remember do you remember what you ordered? Uh, I don't. I don't. I have somewhere I have the menu, but I can't remember what it is that I actually ordered for that drink. <laughs> I remember it was not particularly good. And I would say <laughs> the irony of all this is as good as the food is you know during this time period the drinks are typically kind of awful as most of the 90s uh cocktail scene was at that time so 
Yeah, was I remember the, your was breakdown a lot of, the, of that. Yeah, the syrupy, drink. messy drinks and stuff. Well, and I remember you making that observation when we were going over the, the Pleasure, Pleasure Island. Island. Yeah, Island. same time period. Lots of Midori and <laughs> just kind of terrible. Com- no, ba- It was not very balanced back then. Everything was like very sweet or very sour. There was never an attempt at that time to just make something. They were like, oh, this is just enjoyable. But uh, it, was a, it was a cool place to hang out. Yeah. One of the interesting things about all of these reviews is that they don't review the uh, the cocktail lounges. They kind of, you know, the write-ups of the time tend to focus on the restaurants and not so much the uh, right the drinking establishments, which is not surprising. But yeah, around the corner from the Brown Derby and the and the Catwalk Bar was the Soundstage Restaurant, and the Soundstage Restaurant was a really interesting concept. Uh, it was set up. Uh, initially to duplicate a typical rap party, mm. W-R-A-P, like a production is wrapping up, not that Cool Mo D and LL Cool J are going to come in and <laughs> start a rap party. Um, uh, you know, a final feed celebrating the end of a shooting of a film. Guests would enter the 560-seat restaurant through the back of a set <laughs> When it opened, its theme was inspired by Touchstone's film Big Business, starring Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler, leading to a carpeted hotel lobby set with hosts and hostesses in black and white catering costumes. This is a food court, and there are three distinct areas at the pizza and pasta shop, deep dish pizza, linguine, tortellini, and a cold pasta salad are on the menu. The sandwich shop serves three options, including a meatball sub, chicken salad, and the soundstage special. By the way, this lasted a long time. Thinly sliced salami, pepperoni, and beer chicken. I will spell it for people unfamiliar with German meats like me. B-I-E-R-S-C-H-I-N-K-E-N. With Jarlsberg and smoked Swiss cheese. The soup and salad shop serves chef salads, chicken salad with vegetables, New England-style clam chowder, and chicken broth with tortellini. PB&J sandwiches are available for the kids at each stand. And dessert offerings are the same at all three stations. Toffee cheesecake, chocolate chip pie, and coconut cream pie. No reservations necessary. So that was the soundstage restaurant. Now, if you were to jump ahead... Uh, three years, four years to, uh, I think this was from 1994 when I pulled the next, uh, set out. The write-up is a little bit different because the setting of this 560 seat restaurant is from Aladdin because they had started doing an Aladdin character breakfast in there. If I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. that's right. Uh, and this is where guests can find Aladdin, Jasmine, the genie and Jafar who are often available for, uh, photo opportunities. Music from the film plays all day, which must've been awesome for the people who work there. This (laughs) is a food court and there are three distinct areas. And then they kind of repeat everything I just said, all the sandwiches and the food are the same at this point. And the desserts are all the same. So I don't know if the menu actually changed, but according to Burn Bombs, after four years, it had not. I kind of remember at some point there was like a noodle station or something in one of them. 
but it's noodles. Been a- noodles did well. What was it? Tomorrowland Terrace when they did the refurb in '94, right. they turned it into the Noodle mm-hmm. Station, right? Yeah. Noodles came into their own in the mid '90s. It was a big noodle time. Um, I will mention for the good of the order, uh, at a, you know when the park opened, uh, the Disney MGM Studios, um, you had Dinosaur Gerties was there, and in in Echo Lake serving ice cream. In fact, it said ice cream on her back at that time, and how and I figured out that that was gone by 95 or 96 that had been removed from the back uh, yeah. from her potentially, spine. Potentially earlier, but definitely by 96. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things is if you think Gertie's now, you think of soft ice cream. And soft ice cream was the one thing that <laughs> Gertie's didn't sell back then. Uh, Gertie's at that time uh, sold ice cream bars, fruit yogurt bars, ice cream sandwiches, and frozen bananas, which were notable enough for Scott Joseph to actually write about them. He said, uh, you'll find, you know, ice cream items similar from other parks. However, a new item that they vend is an all-natural frozen banana for $1.60 covered in milk chocolate and crushed peanuts. It's a nice alternative to ice cream. Excuse me. <clears throat> The winner does a number on my uh, sinuses and all. And uh, in keeping with the more healthful bent, be be careful. You could chip a tooth on this banana. <laughs> now, I, one of the reasons I find it interesting is, and I'm this is a call out there to the the West Coast people, but frozen bananas were a thing, and you know, because they're a you know, Balboa Island and and uh, you know, they're they're definitely like a West Coast thing, but they were on like our boardwalks at the Jersey shore. They were a big deal in the, in the seventies and eighties. And I know they were in Walt Disney world and like the magic kingdom because I literally just posted a, a set of slides from the early eighties. And I called it frozen banana family. Cause it's a, it's a family and there's a picture of them all eating their frozen banana. So maybe this one's different because, you know, Raymond redesigned it with uh, some, more pure chocolate than they were using on the other ones or they were hand dipped and not, you know, whatever. Uh, but you know, they were not an innovation for Disney parks. They may not have been an Epcot, but they were definitely in the magic kingdom in the seventies and eighties. Cause I've pictures of people eating them, but it was just interesting that he noted that in his article, like, Oh, hey, they got these frozen bananas as a nice alternative. It's funny, I'm you know I'm looking at the logo that was on the sign, the price yeah. sign, yeah. and Gertie is licking a popsicle, not eating an ice cream cone. So, yeah, I mean, there you they go. They did, they did not put the, they put the because I think now, I think now you can get like a frozen lemonade bar or something like the frozen lemonade or something from there, out of a cooler, but really it's primarily a soft ice cream purveyor. Uh, yeah. They might have they might have Mickey bars or something there too, or, but it, you know it, it's primarily known for its soft ice cream. And, and my recollection is it really only has soft ice cream and like water, and I I think the frozen lemonade or something like that. Um, but you know back then there was no soft ice cream machine in it. It was it was all other ice cream treats that were vent vend vended vend yeah. So I, I found that interesting, uh, but there were, you know, the other places in the park, Men and Bills was there serving, you know, that menu has rotated a lot over the years where it's, 
you know, hot dogs and sandwiches and some specialty items. And they, they seem to change that menu every four or five years. They just like completely redo it. And that's the ship that faces the, the main studio courtyard uh, that's also on Echo Lake. So that's one dining establishment. And then there, once they built Sunset Boulevard, because that was 94, I think they did the Tower of Terror and Rock mm-hmm. and Roller Coaster. And they built Sunset Boulevard and they did that whole Fairfax Fair Market down there of, you know, a variety of quick service locations where you could get burgers and chicken and the fruit stand is down there. And that's where you can get pickles in the park now. And um, but, you know, much of the back of that park, the, 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 the Muppet Vision and all that, that wasn't there when the park opened. They, they opened those in the coming years, uh, the next few years, there were. They tended to flesh out more of the the back of the park and start to build things there. <clears throat> there were a couple reasons for that. The Muppet, um, they hadn't finished the deal with Henson when Jim Henson passed away. So they were doing some projects with them, but they had not actually concluded their deal with, uh, with Henson for uh, everything they were going to do with the Muppets in the parks. And I'm telling you this as a setup to talk a little bit about Mama Melrose's uh, Italian restaurant that was one of two restaurants that opened in 1991 in the parks. And um, my notes here, let me look real quick. The Mama Melrose's opened in September of 1991. And a few months before that, the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater opened in April of 1991. I mentioned earlier the... You know, the original concept for this uh, was it was designed as a half-day park. It was designed as kind of a an enticement to keep you there for another day and to give you something to do, but it was not expected to fill a full day for a family the way that Epcot or the Magic Kingdom were as it was originally designed. Uh, the park proved to be extremely popular, so as you know, within months of it opening, Eisner and company said... Let's put more stuff in here. Let's, you know, we have, we have to, we have to, you know, satiate people's desire to come to this. And they, and so they begin working on making it a full day park, doubling the number of sit down eateries. So that was the first thing that they did. And, uh, the Muppet area is where Mama Melrose sits and sci-fi dine-in theater is on the way. So, you would walk past what is now the ABC commissary and sci-fi dine-in theater down that way pathway to get to the area where star tours opened and then beyond star tours would be Muppet vision and the courtyard area behind Muppet vision where mama Melrose's is. So let's kind of take them in order. The ABC studios commissary is a quick service location. Uh, It's always been one that I kind of, favor because I can always find something there prior to Disney purchasing ABC in 1996. Uh, it was the Disney MGM studios commissary for the first five years of its life, 550 seats, uh, you know, chicken salad, teriyaki burgers, chicken breasts, uh, sandwiches, stir fried vegetables, vegetarian, chili, uh, you know, an efficient quick service spot on the back half of the park at that point. Next to it, sharing a kitchen with it, is the Sci-Fi Dine-In Theater, which really 
you know, when it comes to themed dining experiences, especially in a park, uh, that might be the apex of, like, Disney just was, like, firing on all cylinders. So they designed this you know, restaurant that makes it look like a movie set. You know, like you, where you check in, you're kind of backstage. You can see the, the backside of the sets, and they left them exposed like they're you know, the carpenters were just finished up in there, uh, you know, putting up the plywood sets. And then they go to seat you at your table, uh, which there are a bunch of the tables are modeled after cars. And so you're, it's like you're sitting in a car. It's a great place to eat if you're dining with people you don't particularly care for and don't want to have to make conversation. <laughs> because if you're in... You know, six seats or I think that were three rows or four. I don't remember. But, uh, you know, let's say it's three. It's two seats, two seats, like two, three benches in a row, all facing parked like they're parked at a, in a drive-in facing a movie screen that runs a loop of 1950s and 60s, you know, B-movie sci-fi clips. And a lot of them are trailers. Um, and some good cartoons in there too there there are and yeah. it, and it and it all kind of but it's great because you know you sit next to the person you can tolerate the most and then you really don't have to talk to the other people that you're with because the movie's there to distract you and you're not facing them anyway either they have to turn around in their seat to talk to you or you have to turn around in your seat to talk to them <laughs> so it's a great place for any social families or families that don't like each other <laughs> <laughs> or if you just need a break, you know, you guys are all there. So it is a it is a little gift to the introverts and all of us. Um, the the first burn bombs right up on it says this 250 seat eatery recreates a 1950s drive in theater. The tables are actually flashy 1950s era cars, complete with fins and white walls. Fiber optic stars twinkle overhead in the night sky, and there are real drive-in theater speakers mounted next to each car. All the tables face a large screen where a 45-minute compilation of the best and worst of science fiction uh, trailers and cartoons play in a continuous loop. Popcorn is served before the meals, which includes the Monster Mash, which is a sloppy joe made with turkey. It's a turkey sloppy joe. Tossed in space is the huge chef salad. And they grow among us is a sampling of fruits. The red planet is an assortment of vegetables with linguine and meteoric meatloaf is made with smoked meat. There are also hot and cold sandwiches and a variety of desserts, including cheesecake that ate New York, twin terrors, a banana split, science gone mad, a mixture of fruit cobblers, and when berries collide, a strawberry shortcake. There's also a children's menu. It is moderate too expensive open for lunch and dinner um i have a love-hate relationship with this restaurant uh because in recent visits i've just had terrible meals there like the the the, the atmosphere is great it's fun and then the food comes out and i'm like Ugh, why am I eating here? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've I've been there a couple times. It's been up and down. I've I've had some pretty terrible ones. I used to have a wonderful chopped salad with uh, steak on it. We're really really good, and it didn't have that. I think it's 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 gone a little more 
hub Disney or, dining plan? No, no, Should, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's actually when you look at the menu, it's actually themed more t- towards a takeout or towards a yeah. concession type stand now with a lot of different types of, you know, fried foods and things like that. Mm. But um, yeah, it, it was okay. I mean, it was, you know, I when we were down there in April with some family members who had never dined there before, they said it was a lot of fun. I wouldn't go back because the food wasn't what I would expect. So when when they opened it, uh, Raymond had actually um, created a cream, a cream of popcorn soup, which <laughs> sounds really interesting. But I'm assuming you know we say it's basically a corn chowder of some sort or something. You know, it's got to be a play on that. Right. That had some popcorn maybe sprinkled on top of it, but yeah, uh, I when it opened, I felt the the menu was very similar to dine in. Again, it yeah. was you know comfort foods, but elevated. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, so that's kind of. I mean, it's a shame that it kind of backed off into something a little more pedestrian. But so I guess I, that's kind of the way things went there. And while we're here, before we jump to Mama Melrose, I want to mention that uh, the chocolate molds. Uh, for the dessert specialties that they had made at these places. They did them. He did them for the three recipes down there using an outfit whose name escapes me at the moment, but he mentions it in the in the uh, interview you're going to hear at the end of the episode. And the derby hat, I remember. There was a derby hat dessert, and there was a fully molded chocolate derby hat that was part of, I think, like an ice cream sundae type thing. Then at the 50s prime time, there was a hot rod uh, car, like a 1950s car. They call it a 57 Chevy in some of the articles of the time. But looking at it, I don't think it looks like a 57 Chevy. Um, And an ice cream sundae was kind of served with that. And then in the 50s prime time cafe, they had a television set. Hmm. Uh, that that was a chocolate mold that was integrated into one of the desserts over there. Uh, so when he told me the name of the outfit, I was like, I was curious. Hey, you know, because he said the place is still in business. They have a different name now. He told me who they were. Um, you know, he'll tell you who they are. And I found their website. They're in Orlando. And sure enough, if you wanted to, you can get the derby hat still. Uh, and the uh the hot rod, you know, classic car is still there too. Uh, and they can make them for you or you can buy them from them. Uh, and then the television, there are several television sets that they have. And I, you know, obviously I don't know which one would have been the one that may have been used for that. But he said they were, you know, custom molds that they made for, for Disney and, uh, and supplied them as long as he was there. And he was there until 1996. I know the Derby hat dessert was retired at a certain point. And then they brought it back for some anniversary or celebration, but it was not the full molded Derby. There was just like a little Derby shaped piece of chocolate that was thrown on something. Uh, so that, you know, sci-fi dining kind of reminded me of that as we was talking about these original, places because one of the other desserts he created for these locations was the pb and j milkshake which i've never had uh because it's not something that i love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but it's not something that appeals to me uh because i don't like peanut butter ice cream uh so i wouldn't you know be interested in a dessert based around peanut butter ice cream but at the end of the show you'll listen to the interview i ask him 
uh, how that dessert came to be because it was his creation. And he tells the story. Uh, and the short version is that it was a very late night and they had a bunch of stuff on the table and he was trying to come up with uh, with concoctions to sell in the uh, ice cream and soda shop there. And uh, that was one that he came up with. And in several of the articles at the time where he's interviewed about it, he specifically mentions Smucker's. And Smucker's was the sponsor of the soundstage restaurant. So I guess they like doing a little corporate teamwork there. He th- threw it in there for, for good measure. So those are the, uh, you know, we've been through soundstage and the commissary and sci-fi and Brown Derby and the cafeteria and 50s prime time. So now we're at the back of the park and we're, you know, just come off of Muppet Vision and we're back at Mama Melrose's, which if you were to go today to your left outside Muppet Vision, uh, there is Pizza Rizzo, which is the pizza restaurant, the Muppet themed pizza restaurant, which was not there. Uh, there was no restaurant there for when did they open Pizza Rizzo? Five, six years ago? Yeah. Or, yeah something was a, like that. Th- that building had been used for a variety of things over the years. Um, from an arcade to uh, AFI film display and a whole bunch of things. So the restaurant conversion was, I think, just before Galaxy's Edge went online. Yeah. It was like the year before that they did it. Yep. So a few years before uh, Sci-Fi Dining, or I'm sorry, a few months after Sci-Fi Dining opened, they opened Mama Melrose's. So that would be the additional sit-down restaurant located there. Now... That restaurant was originally supposed to be a Muppet-themed restaurant. And the Jim Corcus has an extensive article on it. The late Jim Corcus has an article um, that he wrote about the restaurant. And, again, all of this stuff that was in development when Jim Henson passed away. And their ideas for the restaurant were it was, you know, you were going to be in kind of like the Muppet Vision um, um load area uh, where much like if you go into Mama Melrose's now, there's exposed beams and pipes and things like that. And part of the gags, there was just supposed to be an endless amount of Muppet gags going on around you as you ate in, in this restaurant, like the Swedish chef and, and, you know, projected things going on in the kitchen that, you know, weren't actually going on in the kitchen. And at some point Gonzo and Camilla were supposed to be going, getting stuck in the tubes over your head and you would be able to hear them talking and you know, just an endless amount of, you know, Muppet gags going on. And as you were trying to eat your pasta or whatever. Yeah. Some artwork so, of that sh- has showed up within the last month. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which was amazing. Yeah. There's some really, really cool artwork in that. So when that deal fell apart because they had not signed the deal yet when, when Jim Henson passed away, they had to kind of call an audible. Muppet Vision was more or less finished or close to it uh, when he when he passed away, but the restaurant was still in the development stages. They hadn't reached a final agreement with Disney on any of that, so Disney decided to pivot and say we need a new you know uh, concept for this. So they go out and they come up with uh, an Italian uh, mother and. There is, again, from Corcus's art, that Michael Eisner was obsessed with the things in the park having a story behind them. 
so you could explain why they were there. The short version of Mama Melrose, whose picture appears in many of the burn bomb guides of the 90s, uh, even though she never actually appeared in the restaurant. Uh, they staged a publicity photo in front of it. The story of Mama Melrose is that she was, uh, I don't know, just an immigrant or an East Coast Italian girl who goes out to the West Coast to make it in Hollywood. She doesn't make it in Hollywood, but she starts operating a restaurant on the studio lot. And uh, that's why the the interior of the restaurant looks like it was thrown together, you know, by the studio people. And uh, she serves great Italian food there. And so they staged this um, publicity shot out front, you know, the live action Mama Melrose. They literally pulled a streetmosphere lady from somewhere else and had her dress up and, you know, stand there in front of the restaurant. And they used that publicity shot for like 10 years. We have a couple good shots of it on our side, I think. But uh, Raymond carried on about this. I mean, he loved what they were originally slinging at, at this Italian restaurant. One of the things was, uh, pizzas being prepared live on stage in a wood-burning oven. And at that point, the big thing of the 80s was Spago in uh, Wolfgang Puck's Spago out in Los Angeles where he was preparing these, you know, fresh, odd, you know, flavored wood-fired pizzas uh, with, you know, exotic toppings like salmon and things like that. And uh, so... They recreated that here. They you know put a put a pizza oven in there, fresh fish and steaks grilled over hardwood uh, char broiler. Other menu items included the you know, lasagna and chicken, veal chops, pasta, variety of toppings. Reservations recommended. And at this point, now we're up to 1994. Walt Disney World Resort guests could make reservations up to three days in advance. So that's 33 percent more time. Than you had <laughs> when the park opened and they only I, I gave you two days. I seem to recall there was always availability at Mama Melrose's to the point where they would have placards and things out front, like trying to get people <laughs> to come in. Because it was in a really odd spot. I it, mean, well, frankly, yeah, you could never it, really knew it was there. With it being so far back in the park, it was not a highly trafficked area. And so you wouldn't ever just randomly walk past it. And see it on your way to someplace else. It was very tucked into a corner. Uh, all of that is true. And it is still a place where there is almost always availability. I mean, you might have trouble there on Christmas Day or something like that. But uh, it is just perennially available uh, if you are in need of a place. Again, that's another spot. I've had hit or miss meals there. And I feel like it's unfair to the restaurants in the studios because I've kind of settled on I like to eat at the Brown Derby on every visit I make to Florida. So on my lunch or dinner, which is usually only one that I have in the studios on a on a given visit, I tend to go to the Brown Derby and I don't tend to make multiple day visits to the studios. So the other sit down restaurants kind of get the short, short shrift from me now because I'm, you know, a, a Brown Derby devotee. Right. But so uh, you, you forgot yeah, one restaurant. I well, wouldn't say forgot, but go ahead. Oh, OK. Well, if no, you didn't, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, the place that I probably ate more because I was on a budget than than other uh, places. 
So <laughs> it has a notorious reputation now for just like crappy food. Yeah. Like people love to just dump on this place. <laughs> I, I, they really do. They're just like, eh, the food is so bad there. And even the burgers are bad. But yes, the Backlot Express. Yes. Which is uh, to the right of Indiana Jones. And as you are walking back to approach uh, Star Tours, it's over on your left. Uh, last time I ate there, I can remember it was a long time ago, but I had a burger and fries or chicken fingers. It was fine. I, you know, I didn't. Yeah. But uh, amongst the uh, like the lifestylers, they're like, oh, I got anywhere but Backlot Express. Yeah, I think it's probably. Um... I think the menu has probably continued to a change and I, and I think the quality of the food has probably dropped, but the thing that was sort of innovative at the time was the fact that it was much like an in-park version of Fuddruckers where you got to pick whether you wanted, you know, a charbroiled chicken or a burger or a hot dog or a salad, but then you had the whole toppings bar, right? that you could go to after you got your basic meal. Like that the Picos Bill setup used to be. I mean, it had, yeah. a, you know, a whole bunch of garbanzo beans and bean sprouts and like cheddar cheese. It had a whole lot of different things that you could put on your, um, put on your burger in order to like dress it up really nicely. Uh, you know, it wasn't and, super, super expensive, but um, it was good. And we should mention that it's called the Backlot Express because it is set up like the Backlot. So, the areas of this massive spot, 600 spots, uh, you know, there's like a the paint shop area right. and the stunt hall and the sculpture shop and a model shop. And all of that's kind of behind like cages around you uh, so that you can't like make off with it. But it all looks like it's stuff being stored there to be used in productions that right. that are happening at the real live movie studio that you're in. Right. And it had and still has, I think, to this day, the 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 Benny, the cab, the actual like me mechanical thing that Bob Hopkins or the stunt person rode oh, that nice. got drawn over to be Benny. And you could just, just sit on it. It was just sitting out there and up on a shelf is the uh, mold for the Pegasus hovercraft from horizons. Yes. Just hanging out there for years and years and years. If they ever wanted to make another one, they could just pull that thing down and fill it up with fiberglass and they're good to go. Are you sure the reason that you liked it, so much wasn't that one of the dessert offerings was apple pie. <laughs> That'd be the second pie he had on the, could have been. the first day. Could have been. Um, so there, there is your kind of walking tour of the first and enduring restaurants. Uh, the sound stage is the only one that closed. It closed in November of 1998 uh, and eventually got converted into a staged and theater uh, setup for the Bear and the Big Blue House stage show, which has gone through some changes over the years and is now the Disney Junior Live on stage. I think it was Doug at one point was in there too. Am no, I Doug was replaced um, Superstar Television. Ah, that's right. But it would cycle that's through right. whatever the the mix of Playhouse Disney yeah. was. And so now with yeah. that Playhouse Disney slash Disney Junior, um, it's they it's interchanging now they can swap it out so vampirina's been in there and sophia the first and um 
you know, they, they can just take whatever kind of is hot at the moment. Like, oh, we'll give them, a, you know, 10 minutes on stage. and Right, yeah. It used to be puppet-driven. I don't know if it's still puppets now. Uh, I can honestly tell you I have never set foot in the place or seen the show. <laughs> so I, I am the wrong person. I am without children of that age. Uh, so I yeah. can't tell you what happens in there I, it was kind of no one no one can whatever happens inside of the disney jr <laughs> stays inside of the disney stays jr. inside <laughs> yeah. there um bef- well before we wrap up uh i want to give a preview of kind of what chef pitts is going to talk about in his interview because what i've done is i've cut out most of my dialogue with him and so his his is uh, mostly a running dialogue of, of things that he touches on, some of which we've talked about, some of which he'll round out. But one of the things, um, you know, you'll hear him talk about getting the job and developing the restaurants, his research trips to California, the, you know, the Brown Derby, which was tough, the 50s prime time, which was fun, who he talked to uh, about food in America in the 50s and drive-in movie theaters. When he was deciding, because he grew up in Germany, so he didn't have a, a point of reference. Oh, how fascinating. Uh, yeah. Uh, Eisner's involvement and in the executive tastings, the molded chocolate, as I mentioned, the Cobb salad and grapefruit cake he talks about, the milkshake, the Muppet restaurant. Uh, he does, when he talks about Mama Melrose, des- describes in great detail this amazing dessert pizza that they introduced there and designed especially for mama melrose's in that and that wood-fired kitchen and as he describes how they took mozzarella cheese and would sweeten it overnight by soaking it in honey and sugar and i forget what i think vanilla and you know would make this uh, sauce out of like fruit that they would mash and all. i i wanted to climb through the phone and eat it like <laughs> so i i think it'll probably have the same impact when you hear it i did ask Besides the Muppets, was there another restaurant or any other restaurants that concepts that kind of got thrown out? Because, you know, Disney being Disney, they, you know, a lot of stuff gets thrown on the board. And I I feel like a thief now because I have for from time to time opined to people before they made the Regal Eagle barbecue place at the American Adventure that what I would have ideally liked to have seen them done do was take that space at American Adventure in Epcot where the quick service was before where you could just get burgers and chicken fingers and then take the empty pad next to it and make it a larger kind of food hall and pull from regions of America like having New England clam chowder and having, you know, beignets from from New Orleans and maybe shrimp jambalaya there and uh, Chicago deep dish pizza and, and Baltimore pit beef sandwiches. I said, there's a lot there that you could take foods that cities or regions are famous for and make a whole food court out of that, uh, that would fit perfectly next to the American adventure. Um, and of course they built the Regal Eagle, uh, <laughs> barbecue place. So that's never going to happen. But Raymond told me that his uh, his favorite abandoned concept was called Taste of the Americas, and they were going to build a restaurant 
in the studios that had stuff from New Orleans and would have had a New England clam bake. And this is exactly as I'm describing, like these, these, uh, like a food court almost that would have had different stations uh, from different regions of America. So uh, apparently it was not an original idea of mine, but I swear I didn't know about that. <laughs> um, so you'll, you'll hear a lot of that touched on. At the end of the interview, uh, a little bit of his touching on what he thinks has changed in the park and the, the his philosophy on food quality in the park and how that changes as you move from making stuff in-house like they did when he was there to outsourcing most things like they do now. He pays tribute to some colleagues uh, who've recently departed, including Bob Colburn, who had just passed away last month and was a, was one of those guys that started at the bottom rung in 1971. And over the years, uh, had worked his way up to become a major manager by the time he retired and, uh, played a role in some of the success they had over there. We discuss my love of starring Rolls bakery. And then, uh, he delivers his closing remarks and farewell. So that's about 20 minutes. And, uh, he's a, you know, any of you who saw him at retro magic, uh, he's a fascinating guy. And, the restaurants he created uh, with his team <laughs> in Disney MGM Studios and now Hollywood Studios, they all endure. They're all still there. And I, I can't think of a bigger, better testament uh, to the fact that essentially the concepts he came up with 33 years ago uh, are all still there. They, they, they haven't tinkered with them. All right, Brian. Well, thanks for putting this together. Let's take a listen to Chef Raymond Pitts. At what point did you find out you were going to be the – the executive chef there for that particular park? I found out a year and six months prior to opening. So I was handed a, a big book, uh, a big binder, three-ring binder. And it had all kind of concepts and ideas and, and uh, even menus uh, that were previously written. Uh, but once I uh, was handed that binder, uh, I was told by Larry Slocum, who was the vice president of, of parks at that time, that uh, this is uh, just a guide. Uh, I want you to do all of the research and development and go through all of the different uh, restaurant concepts that have been pre-selected uh, by uh, California, obviously. Uh, I think WDI was involved and, and uh, the creative side of, of our organization and uh, basically, I started going through all of it. I uh, took several trips to California. I went to the Hollywood Brown Derby, which was on Vine Street there. And at that time, uh, luckily for me, it was owned by Walter Shafi, who had bought it from Bob, uh, Bob Cobb. And what was, what was even better about it, uh, he was German and so was I. So we got along very, very well. Uh, I went there several times, you know, tasted all the food that they had. I get the actual true story of the cop salads, you know, as opposed to what was written back in those days. And uh, I just started going through it restaurant by restaurant. Uh, the most difficult challenge, uh, without a doubt, was the Brown Derby. The most fun uh, uh, menu to develop was 50 prime time. Had a lot of a lot of fun there, uh, developing the dishes, talking to a lot of, uh, believe it or not, senior citizens uh, to just to talk to them a little bit. Uh, um, 
you know, as to what they had when they were young and they were growing up. And the same thing applied for the, the sci-fi uh, driving theater. Uh, I talked to a lot of folks, uh, again, senior folks that, that actually lived uh, during the era where there was, you know, driving movies uh, all over the place. You know, as I was growing up in Germany, we didn't have that. When I came to this country, there were a couple here in town. And then, you know, before we even opened the studio, they were all gone. Okay. So those were the really fun restaurants uh, to, to develop. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, when it came to the Brown Derby, there were a lot of challenges because, uh, quote, that was uh, uh, Michael Eisner's uh, baby, so to speak. Although he was involved in in, in every aspect of uh, not only the creative side of, of uh, then MGM Studios, but also in in, in the, the selection of um, uh, menu items. You know, as I told you all the stories uh, story with the hot dog, it, it, it was an unbelievable challenge, but something I will treasure for the rest of my life. There was no input uh, from our side, if you will, as to what restaurants they were going to have. The only thing we really had control of is to research, develop uh, the menus, you know, and then ultimately we made uh, presentations to uh, Mike Leiden and then uh, Frank Wells, uh, along with Bob Matheson, Dick Nunes, uh, Larry Slocum, they were in the tastings. And uh, based on that, we developed uh, the menus uh, based on their feedback. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, not only about uh, the executives of the company, worked with them very closely, but also about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the vision that that WDI had, if you will, in developing these restaurants. Uh, and as we got closer to opening, it really all, it, it all really came together. They did a lot of research and development on them, as I said. But the key to the success of these, these restaurants Really, really was the creativity of, of, of uh, everyone involved, including, uh, you know, chefs, managers, everyone. Several of the restaurants, starting with the Brown Derby, we had a Brown Derby hat, you know, the famous hat, mm -hmm. of the Brown Derby, that's on the logo of the Brown Derby. That was made out of chocolate, and uh, I uh, ha uh, was still a good friend of mine today. Uh, chocolate, uh, back then it was called chocolate a la carte. Today it's called Chocolate Accent. And they developed all of the, uh, uh, not only did they develop the molds, but also manufactured uh, the chocolate for us, for the Brown Derby, for the Derby hat. Uh, we had, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, we had a, a car for the cypher, a cypher, you're talking about chocolate. Yeah. And then for, uh, we had a television for uh, 50s prime time. Really? Uh, yes, and those, uh, uh, I believe, oh my God, they all stayed uh, through, through my entire tenure there because they, they were very popular. People really enjoyed the creativity of it. Uh, but uh, last time I went there, I didn't, I didn't see any of that. But to me, the, the Brown Derby had, uh, not only did it make a statement, uh, but uh, it was the symbol, the iconic symbol of the Brown Derby uh, in regards to how it was recognized all over the world. The people that came from all over the world, I spoke to a lot of them, they remember that Brown Derby hat from the, 
from from the the sign outside at the original restaurant uh, uh, of the Hollywood. The real story is that some friends of Bob Cobb came over to his house and they had a couple of drinks and then they all got all were getting uh, getting hungry and he lived from what I understand right around the corner. Uh, some, uh, he said, "Well, let's just go over to the restaurant and see what we had. They were already closed. It was late at night." So he went into the refrigerator. He found some wilted uh, uh, lettuce and some different. Uh, he had some tomatoes. He had bacon. He had eggs. He had chives. He had avocado. Everything goes into the cop salad. And what he did, he chopped up that wilted lettuce real fine, and he put it in between a, uh, a towel, if you will. And, and he squeezed it real tight and ran it under ro- uh, running water to get rid of all the juices so it's nice and dry. And he layered that in there and then he lined it up with bacon, egg, you know, chopped egg, uh, tomatoes, chives, uh, blue cheese. And then he made a very simple French dressing with vinegar, oil, salt, and pepper. Have a nice day. And he served it to them. They loved it so much that they decided to put it on the Brown Derby menu, and it became an iconic, uh, uh, an iconic dish. Uh, the same goes for the grapefruit cake. You either hate it or you love it. You know, it was made with fresh cream cheese, sugar, vanilla, a basic white cake, and uh, they made an icing with it, with the cream cheese, a little bit of lemon in there. Uh, and then it was layered with, uh, uh, they put the icing on top, you know, on the cake in between the layers, and then layered fresh uh, uh, wedges of grapefruit. And and that's another thing, you either loved it or you hated it, uh, but boy, it was very popular. And I went to California and I saw uh, Walter Sharpie. He took me to a lady that was in there, I guess worked for him for years. She That's all she did is make the grapefruit cake. That's how many they served. Uh, I'm sure she's not alive anymore because she was quite old when I met her. Oh, they were triangles, really. They were wedges. So they were they were layered in the middle of the cake all the way around the top. And then they put another small layer of cream cheese on it so when you put the next layer of cake on, it would stick to it. They layered the top based on how many slices. It was 12 at that time. That 12 beautiful wedges of... of uh, Oh my goodness! Uh, grapefruit on there, so you could cut it uh, evenly. While we're talking about desserts, the uh, peanut butter and jelly milkshake—that—that's one of your creations as well, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. I should have copyrighted that thing. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come to be? It. Uh, we were. Oh my God! This was twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning, and we had to finish up the soda fountain menu. And I saw jelly there, I saw peanut, you know, we just bought a whole bunch of stuff and put it in the middle of the table. And then I uh, got the mixing uh, uh, cups, you know, and I started messing around. I said, you know something? Uh, everybody loves peanut butter and jelly. You know, what about, uh, uh, you know, so I said, what the heck, I'm going to make it. So I made it and I, I gave it to a few of the cooks and, and some of the chefs that tried and they loved it. I said, the heck, we're going to do it. So we ended up doing it. There were a couple of other real nice ones. We had a molasses one. There were a lot of different ones. But the one that's still there, to my knowledge today, is the peanut butter jelly. It's probably one of the most popular drinks. In it. And that's why I said maybe I should have copyrighted it, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get royalties on every shake, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So the, you opened uh, Sci-Fi in uh, the spring of 91, uh, a couple years after the park opened. And that same uh, summer, you opened uh, Mama Melrose's in the back. Right. And that was originally, one of the concepts for that was going to be a Muppet restaurant. And Correctly. Yeah. Contractual reasons. So were you involved in it when it was originally going to be a Muppet restaurant? Oh, yeah. But as I said, because there was a contract issue, they, they scrapped it. Okay. And it became uh, Mama Melrose's. And... Yep. A very creative restaurant, pizza oven at that time. You know, wow, what's a pizza oven? People didn't even know, you know. And uh, we did fresh pizzas in there. We did a dessert pizza that was incredible. Uh, I don't know if it's still there today. So we would just do a, uh, we take pizza dough and make it a little bit sweeter than normal. We would take uh, uh, we take fresh strawberries, put put uh, 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 a tad of of uh, lemon in it, and then we we would cook that and then thicken it up, a touch of vanilla in it. And we spread that onto the dough that would become the tomato sauce. And then we would take uh, mozzarella cheese and add it, uh, uh, we added vanilla, honey, and some sugar. And we, we mixed all that together and we let it sit overnight so the vanilla goes through the cheese and all of that. Sweet, and the sugar sweet, the honey sweetened it up. And we would put that onto the pizza. And then we would add like... Uh, Diced apples, diced pears, you know, all different, different kind of, and then we would make a streusel, which is basically flour, sugar, vanilla, and we put that on the top, it would, would crumble like, it's almost like a, like a Dutch apple pie, the topping, and we would sprinkle that on the top, and then a little bit more of the, the special cheese we made, and baked it, it was incredible, with all the different types of fruits, and they loved it, uh, we made, uh, oh my God, fresh pasta, uh, all kind of. It's a, the Mama Morello's was a very popular restaurant. It it uh, uh, like I said, that one was thrown in our lap because they did away with the Muppets. Uh, but it was a, a, a great concept. Uh, Any other restaurants other than the Muppets that you kind of remember were maybe in the planning phase and got scrapped? Well, it was going to be a, a, an American style uh, restaurant uh, that was that was going to go uh, over there somewhere. Uh, we did the research and development on it. You know, it, it, uh, it was called the Taste of the Americas, but it never went anywhere. Okay. With the menu on that, we had, you know, stuff from New Orleans, uh, a, a traditional clam bake, uh, you know, from up north. We did all different kind of things, but it, but it never happened. Uh, the other restaurant I really liked as well was uh, sound, uh, not sound stage, but uh, oh my god, my brain right next to the fifty uh, with the rotisserie chicken and all that. That was also very successful, especially with the rotisserie right there. People could see it, you know, roasting, and it it was almost an interactive type of a thing, sort of like fifties prime time, where you came in, you could see all the chefs working. You know, putting all the orders together as people were going through the lines, almost like a buffeteer type thing, uh, but more upscale, I, I, I felt. Uh, uh, that was very popular, but the one that I really took, uh, uh, that I really enjoyed, uh, like I said, was 50s prime time and the Brown Derby. 
you know, money no object as far as the Brown Derby, the creativity chef, listen, you do what you need to do, make it happen. And it was a huge success, especially during the grand, grand opening, because that's where we, we housed all of the movie stars. That whole Brown Derby was closed off to all of the press. It was, you know, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, uh, oh my God, they had, uh, who else was there? Jaja Gabor, um, you name it. There were several, several past U.S. presidents in there. It, it, it was the party of the party. You know, Ben Midler was there, um, De Niro, who's who? At the end of the day, I don't care what anybody says. If you have full control of ordering, receiving, inspecting, fabricating, and producing a product to the customers that you have full control of, uh, the, the quality is untouchable. Once you start outsourcing, you lose full control, period. You know, yes, you know, like what we had, and what I mean by that is we had uh, SPC, the food production facility. So you could order bread from the bakery, cookies, cakes, whatever you wanted, they would make it. Your specifications. If you wanted uh, a tenderloin already trimmed so you don't have to pay for the labor to clean it, you could order that from, from food processing. If you wanted a basic demi demi-glass or tomato sauce or different dressings or mac and cheese, you could get all of that made to your specifications. You know, when you give respect to an outside company, if you will, and you buy it from the outside, what does that do? It does one thing, okay? And that is it, it's cheaper. It saves you labor, okay? What, what it doesn't do, it doesn't give you the, the ability to exactly know what's in that product 100%, although it'll tell you, but don't believe it. You don't have control of the quality of the product. You don't have control of the consistency of the product. You don't have control of, of, of the proper texture of the product or any of that. And that's what's missing, in my opinion, today at, uh, at Disney, because they outsource a lot of products. And to me, that's, that's where you lose control. At least that's how I was raised, if you will. You know, don't ask me to put on a dinner if I have to buy stuff from the outside and eat it, serve it. That's, that's not cooking. Where I come from, that's what they call shoemaking. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I know times change, economics change, but, you know, you can still make a lot of quality products at a very competitive rate and end up having control of what, of what you're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. You know, the bread is a little underbaked today. Oh, that's okay. Just put it in the oven, cook it a little bit longer before we serve it. That's not the way to do it, you know? Or dressing is too thick. Oh, let's go and add a little water, you know? You lose control of quality. And any chef that was there during these days uh, will tell you the same thing. Matter of fact, I went to a funeral last week. Uh, on the 18th, actually, Bob Coburn passed away. You know, he was, I don't care what anybody said, he was one of the iconic managers back in those days, you know, running the Magic Kingdom, then they put him in charge of the food processing center. Slowly but surely, they, all these 
these, these great uh, managers, chefs are starting to pass away. Well, Gus Weiler passed away. Uh, Tony Geraci passed away. Walter Meyer passed away. You know, they're all, they're all starting to uh, fade out. Uh, nothing but great memories from, from, from my time at Disney. My absolute favorite thing to do uh, was to come into that park first thing in the morning, go right to Starring Rolls Bakery there next to the oh, Brown oh, Derby, yeah. Oh, yeah. and uh, and sit and have my coffee and pastry for breakfast. The, the pastries there were delicious. Made fresh every day. Nothing in advance, none of that night before, any of that. I would go for that. It was made every single morning. But well, the, uh, the, the success of the studio was because of the dedication of the entire food and beverage team. The, 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 the support we, we received from upper management, you know, general food and beverage manager, the food and beverage director, vice president, Louis, Louis Slocum. You know, some people found it very difficult to work with Larry, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you something. That man asked you to do something. You take care of it. I never, ever had one issue with that man. Ever. I had the utmost respect for him. He was tough, but hey, that's what he got paid for, to do a job, you know, like everyone else. Uh, but he was, he was a, great, uh, a great example, a great team leader. All right. Well, that was really interesting, Brian. So you edited that, that down, as you said, but uh, a lot of great information in there. And uh, I'm really glad you gave him a call. So does Raymond want to come back and talk to us again about anything? He has repeatedly <laughs> offered to come back to uh, a retro magic. He really wants to cook for, for, you know, our room full of people, not necessarily feed them, but yeah. go up and do a Julia Child style demonstration with his team of you know, I'm only doing of... that if we have a big mirror over the stage on an <laughs> angle so everybody can see the pots and pans. And Well, you so. know, he's got a lot of pride in the accomplishments, and rightfully so, of the Culinary Olympics teams uh, that, that competed from Disney and those teams that uh, he and Johnny Rivers and Keith Keough and others led uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, they set a record for winning medals that will never be equaled. Right. And uh, to think that that was Disney's culinary legacy. And you do hear a little bit of wistfulness in his, in his voice that they're not focused on those things today. That, uh, you know, as you get into the, the revolving door of management and, you know, there aren't career path people there as much now as, as there are, you know, people who kind of come from central casting and MBA school and, you know, here you're in charge of all the food at this park. Or, you know. <laughs> and so you do hear a bit of that wistfulness in, in, in his comments. But, uh, yeah, he wants to come back and uh, and talk more food with us. And so he's – and he's a, just a, – I mean, I could listen to him all day. He's, yeah. I mean, our conversation was much longer than this. Um, but I cut it down as much as I could and kept the good parts, you know. Cut it down to 305, as Billy would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. So, well, thank you very much for this – culinary what's the word i'm looking for crusade cabaret Cabaret. culinary cabaret Culinary cabaret. through the studios um how you wanted to uh kind of tease well we did kind of tease at the beginning of uh uh, about the next episode being uh, or at least an upcoming episode on on uh, pleasure island yeah we'll do that uh, in january do that in january there's something else you wanted to talk about too what was it i uh, we've you know we've got some new merch in the shop 
Oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, so so go check that out. And of course, we still have a few uh, robots left. Yeah, the Rising Christmas ornaments, right? Butler Robot, yeah. And head over to lbvhistory.org forward slash donate uh, for $25. One of the Horizons Butler Head Robots can be used maybe we do we have trade. a few earful towers left from the holiday persuasion Sadly, Did we get rid of those? no, no oh, we got okay all gone those are no. gone the melikaliki makas are gone your, your the, stocking stuffer options are the 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 watch uh are the puffy stickers mm-hmm. and the robot um robot head uh ornament i yep. think that's it in terms of our merch other than what's available from the t-shirt and uh, merch shop, of course. Yep. All right. Well, thank you everybody who is who has bought and supported us uh, on the other stuff, and you go get your robots now. That's right. Yep. Got them. So this is this is the time. As always, we appreciate everybody's uh, donations and everything keeping us going and keeping us on the air here, so to speak. But. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I we will see everybody next month, and actually not even next month, just in a few weeks here as we do a holiday episode, and we've got the holiday streaming, and uh, we might just have to play Cranium Command Revisited for everybody on that holiday stream, so keep your eyes peeled to Twitter and Facebook and all the great socials out there, so... Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And uh, give us a shout out on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcasting app is. And uh, with Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at WDWMS, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at GoAwayGreen, JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt, 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. (laughs) 